I'm your Huckleberry. If you haven't seen Tombstone, you should. Best Western ever. My favorite movie ever, actually. Uh, my favorite character from that movie is Doc Holliday. And, and I thought Holliday, portrayed by Val Kilmer, was heavily fictionalized by Hollywood. Turns out, maybe not nearly as much as I thought. John Henry Holliday, better known as Doc Holliday, was a wild Western anomaly. He was a gambler, drunk, gunslinger, and quite possibly a thief. But he also was an educated Southern dentist raised by well-to-do plantation owners. He was a complicated and fascinating man who we only know through the descriptions of those who knew him, some of whom who liked him and admired him and others who despised and reviled him. He didn't write a lot about himself. And by uh, not a lot, I mean nada. This was a really fun story to suck into. So let's head back to the Wild West, one of my favorite eras of ever. Been a while since we visited. Today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Friday, bonus suckers. Hail Nimrod. Praiseable Jangles. I'm Dan Cummins, and this is Time Suck, bonus episode 16, the 1600 iTunes review episode. Thank you so much for continuing to pour those reviews in. It means a ton. It helps this show so much. And thanks for voting for uh, Doc Holiday last week on at Time Suck Podcast on Instagram. I liked all three choices. Obviously, I, I put them up there. But uh, I, yeah, I was really, really, uh, I really, really enjoyed doing the research on this episode, particularly. Uh, recording from the Suck Dungeon, lots going on. Uh, sipping on some water and some coffee uh, that came out of the same machine supplied to the Suck Dungeon by Time Sucker Trent Taverti. Man, thank you for uh, for hooking up the Suck Dungeon with a with a crazy coffee and water robot. Whatever the hell that thing is. Fancy. I uh, love it, Trent. And uh, and I love that your last name has no vowels. That is fucking weird. Good for you, rocking that last name. Uh, my new album, Maybe I'm the Problem, is here. And you can hear it only on Pandora for the next three months. And you can hear it for free. And you get to listen to the entire album straight through by using a link in today's episode description. It's on Pandora Premium. Uh, it only works on mobile devices. So, you know, your iPads, your, your, your smartphones, all that stuff. And, and you don't have to be a premium listener to enjoy it. The link gives you a free 30-minute trial of Pandora Premium if you're not a premium member. Uh, and then when the time is up, you just click the link, listen to another quick ad, and you get to finish the new album. And uh, the feedback's been great. I'm really proud of how it came out, and I, and I hope you enjoy it. If you have any trouble, just be uh, sure to update your Pandora app to the latest version to make sure that it works. So check that out. And less than a week away from the age of the space lizards. The Patreon account is live for those of you who want to sign up early to become space lizards next month. You won't be charged five bucks until Feb 1st, uh, February 1st, and that's when the new space lizard features uh, arrive on the app that we're troubleshooting right now, beta testing right now. Uh, they'll be on the website too. That's when another uh, new album, that's right, a second one, Feel the Heat, will be available uh, for, you know, uh, for space lizards only. Space Lizard merch is going to come out. And by the way, there's going to be a, a little teaser for that uh, Feel the Heat at the end of this episode. Uh, yes. And um, and February's When the Secret Suck podcast comes out. So much stuff happening. Huge thanks to over 500 time suckers who have already signed up. So the Space Lizard revolution is here. Uh, I hope you're, hope you're going to want to get in on that shit. Uh, link to the Patreon profile uh, is your ticket to the exclusive World of the Space Lizards in the episode description. And again, Patreon just been used to collect that five dollars a month, and then you won't have to go through it to listen to the podcast. It's all going to be on the app and the website. And uh, so, yeah. Um, and, and you know, if you just want to try the new stand-up album and you're not sure about the secret suck, well, you know what? Just cancel after a month. 
Then you get a new album for five bucks. Uh, thanks to the Time Suckers who came out last night in Philly. Uh, I'll be here tonight and tomorrow at the Punchline, and then Baltimore Sunday at McGoobies. And uh, Chicago, January 31st through Feb 3rd. New York City, Feb 11th. More in the episode description. Now, Doc Holiday. So who really was Doc Holiday? It's hard to say for sure because the man didn't keep a journal. And accounts written uh, about him by contemporaries very wildly. Uh, we may never know all the details, but we do get kind of the gist. He was a lunger. Uh, which means he did suffer from and he did die of a uh, consumption, uh, a.k.a. tuberculosis. He was a doctor. He graduated from dental school in Philadelphia. He was a drunk, a gambler. He was arrested and fined many, many times for crimes involving being drunk in public and for gambling and for violence. Uh, he's a gunslinger. He's rumored to have killed several men. There are newspaper accounts of him getting in gunfights. A lot of contemporary accounts of him uh, not only being ready to draw down on anyone, but also uh, being a really good, fast, quick-draw gunslinger. But again, uh, who he really was, how good, how bad, that eludes us to some extent. Historian Gary L. Roberts uh, writes the following uh, in, in, in an excellent Doc Holiday book. I leaned on heavily for today's episode. Uh, this, is, this is not a sponsor. I just can't recommend this book enough. Uh, a great read and very thorough. Uh, Doc Holiday, The Life and Legend. And he says, not a single sample of his writing that would provide insight into how he felt or what he believed appears to have survived. Without a body of letters or even reminiscences written by him that would serve as a corrective to the half-known life presented in the opinion-gripped contemporary press and the memories of men and women who saw him through the lenses of their own agendas and emotion-packed prejudices, John Henry Holiday tantalizes the biographer with unanswered questions. He did not have a frontier-wide reputation until after his experiences at Tombstone in 1881 and 1882. Before then, his life did not always leave a clear trail. As a result, much of his life, even many of its most critical moments, are left to informed speculation and possibilities. All right, well, here, here are some of those uh, informed speculations. Uh, opinions, I guess, again, varied. Uh, Wyatt Earp, who was great friends with Doc, uh, through his ghostwriter in 1896, described Doc as a mad, merry scamp with a heart of gold and nerves of steel, who stood at my elbow in many a battle, to the death. He was a dentist, but he preferred to be a gambler. He was a Virginian, actually a Georgian, uh, but he preferred to be a frontiersman and a vagabond. He was a philosopher, but he preferred to be a wag. I love the terminology. He was, he was a wag. He was a long, lean, and ash blonde and the quickest man with a six-shooter I ever knew. Well, that's fucking badass. Uh, Bat Mat Masterson, uh, a former uh, uh, marshal of Dodge County and, and guy who uh, popped up in a lot of the cities Doc was, would be in and who worked with Doc over the years, uh, had a less favorable uh, description of Doc, saying that he had a mean disposition and an ungovernable temper and under the influence of liquor was a dangerous man. Uh, also describing him as a weakling who could not have whipped a healthy 15-year-old boy in a go-as-you-please fight. <laughs> Jeez. Masterson saw him as hot-headed and impetuous and very much given to both drinking and quarreling, and among men who did not fear him, he was very much disliked. Uh, the editor of the Las Vegas, uh, Las Vegas, New Mexico, that is, Daily Optic, uh, who was safely distant from Doc at the time he wrote this, uh, described him as a shiftless, bagged-legged character, a killer, and a professional cutthroat, and not a wit too refined to rob stages or even steal sheep. He was a dirty sheep thief. Uh, I added that last one. Uh, a fellow Georgian who uh, knew him as a young man and later dabbled in silver mining in Colorado said of him following his death, 
He was a warm friend, and would fight as quick for one as he would himself. He did not have a quarrelsome disposition, but managed to get into more difficulties than any man I ever saw. An unidentified a newspaper man remarked about Doc in 1882, Here is a man who, once a friend, is always a friend. Once an enemy is always an enemy. Uh, Ridgely Tilden, a correspondent for the San Francisco Examiner in 1882, wrote of him, saying, Now comes Doc Holliday, a quarrelsome as man as God has ever allowed to live on earth, a Georgian, well-bred and educated. He happened in Kansas some years ago, saving Wyatt Earp's life in Dodge City, Kansas. He earned his gratitude, and notwithstanding his many bad breaks since, has always found a friend in Wyatt. Doc Holliday is responsible for all the killing, etc., in connection with what is known in the Earp Clanton Imbroglio in Arizona. Uh, he kicked up the fight, and Wyatt Earp and his brothers stood in with him on the score of gratitude, which is a very interesting perspective because uh, a lot of historical accounts uh, do not paint that picture at all. Uh, I would say most of them paint a picture of Wyatt Earp and uh, starting the rivalry with the Clanton, and it was over some kind of arrest they made. The Cowboys were a gang of uh, rustlers and thieves living in a tombstone and around tombstone. Uh, Earps, uh, they were, you know, the Earp brothers, a couple of them, were going back and forth between being lawmen and being gamblers and a little bit of possible thieving uh, themselves, actually, and it just became a, uh, a rivalry. And I think Doc Holliday was actually brought into it. But that's just from different things I read. So who knows, though? It's interesting with the Wild West. I love the mystery. I love to get all these accounts, you know, and the truth is just somewhere in the middle, all these big gunboat tales. So um, so let's get in. let's get into his life. Let's learn all we can about Doc Holliday, and you can form your own opinions uh, by jumping right on in to a Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. On January 8, 1849, 29-year-old Henry Holliday wed 19-year-old Alice Jane McKee, daughter of wealthy southern plantation owners in Griffin, Georgia. The couple moved into a house on Tinsley Street, north of the railroad tracks in Griffin. Georgia entered the 19th century, still largely the homeland of the Creeks and the Cherokees, uh, both of those uh, Indian nations. Uh, John Henry's father, Henry Burroughs Holiday, was a self-made man. Andrew Jackson's common man, the kind of man uh, 19th century Americans celebrated. His people were plain folk in the Old South. Henry's paternal great-grandfather, William Holiday, was one of three Scotch-Irish brothers who immigrated to America from Ireland sometime after 1750. Uh, he settled in the Lawrence District of South Carolina while his brothers, objecting to settling slave states, uh, moved north. I think that's, that's pretty cool. It's probably rare back then, you know, uh, back in the uh, early uh, uh, or, you know, late 18th century. People being like, no, man, that's fucking bullshit. We're not going to do that. And they left. But uh, Doc's ancestor, uh, direct ancestor, stayed. <laughs> uh, William and his sons fought in the American Revolution with the hero of Hornet's Nest, Elijah Clark, and took their first lands in Wilkes County, Georgia, from bounties for that service. Uh, Henry, Doc's father, was a son of plantation-owning slave owners and was destined for the same life himself. He was, like many of his ancestors, also a war veteran, having recently fought in the Mexican War starting in 1846. Holiday was commissioned a second lieutenant in Company 1, and his company served in the regiment of Colonel Henry R. Jackson in Savannah. They were bound for Mexico, where Jackson's regiment was in the thick of the fight with General Zachary Taylor at Monterey and served with distinction at Veracruz and Jalapa under General Scott. When Holiday returned to Griffin, he brought with him a Mexican boy named Francisco Hildago. Hildago, goddamn. He brought a boy named Francisco, goddammit. It was his last name. It was a terrible last name to be put on a kid, especially, you know, in the 
religious South, you know, he's had to go by Mr. Goddammit the rest of his life, and people are pit. No, it was Francisco Hidalgo, uh, who had been orphaned by the war and took him into his household, uh, though at the time Henry was still a bachelor. Uh, Doc's mother's family were respected in Griffin and Henry County. Her grandfather, Joseph Cloud, was a member of one of the wealthiest slaveholding and landholding families in the region, uh, owning property for a distance of more than 50 miles geez, uh, from Stone Mountain to Griffin. After marriage, uh, Henry settled into married life at Griffin as a druggist and began to build a reasonably good life for his aristocratic wife and himself. He was soon a prominent citizen and uh, noted as a hard-nosed businessman and a quick-tempered adversary. Griffin prospered, benefiting from a railroad line that ran from Atlanta to Macon and from slaves who worked the surrounding cotton fields. Soon became a central point for shipping cotton. Henry grew with the town, speculating in land and eventually uh, acquiring 46 plots within the town limits and hundreds of acres in the county as well as potential railroad properties and other parts of the state. By all accounts, Alice Jane was a refined, genteel, and pious woman as befitted her background. A wife, devoted to her husband, and committed to a charity and church. Reared a Methodist, she joined the Presbyterian Church in Griffin. Uh, to bring family together in matters of faith. So December 3rd, 1849, Doc's parents waste no time trying to start a family. Uh, they get they get right down to it. Um, uh, yeah, they, have on, uh, they give birth to their first child, Martha Eleonora, and then sadly on June 12th, 1850, she dies and is buried at a small cemetery in Griffin. Childhood death back then was just a, just a fact of life. Uh, Doc would be the only child born to the couple to make it out of early childhood. I believe they had like five other kids who just all died early in childhood. Uh, on August 14th, 1851, uh, a second child, a son, is born to Henry and Alice Jane. He was named John Henry Holiday after his uncle and father. And he became the center of their world as the eldest son of the eldest son, young John Henry, was destined to play a large role in family life. Uh, March 21st, 1852, John Henry's baptized at the Griffin Presbyterian Church. In 1853, little Henry, uh, little John Henry, was not yet two years old when his adopted much older brother Francisco, Mr. Francisco, goddammit, uh, moved out to start his own family. Uh, he married Martha Freeman in Butts County. Ah, 12-year-old me just laughed a little bit. Oh, man, it's B-U-T-T-S, too. <laughs> oh, good, good jokes when you're 11 around Butts County. Uh, you know, you're going into Butts County, you're coming out of Butts County. Lots of, lots of fun stuff to be had there. You know, things things are things are looking rough in Butts County. You know, oh, th- things are muddy. Ah, it's muddy as hell in Butts County today down in the down in the canyon. It's real muddy, real muddy coming on out of Butts Canyon. Uh, Butts County. <laughs> I'm a fucking idiot. On June 12th, 1854, and they settled down there. On November 9th, 1856, William Land McKee, Alice Jane's father, also died, and Henry became the guardian of his wife's minor siblings: Thomas Sylvester, Melissa Ella, uh, Eunice, uh, Eunice, excuse me, <laughs> Eunice, Eunice Helena. That's, a, that's an unfortunate name. <laughs> Sorry if anyone out there has named that. I feel like the other kids got the good names. Ah, we'll have Thomas Sylvester, and we'll have Melissa Ella, and then we'll have Eunice Helena, and then we'll have Margaret Ann. Eunice was like, what the fuck? Why did I get fucking Eunice Helena? Um, as well as the guardian of their inheritance and his wife's. Oh, so he becomes the guardian of the inheritance. Uh, young Doc's education of a gentleman begins around this time, both in manners of the well-born taught by his mom and in the stern demands of southern manhood imposed by his father. And it was interesting reading about how kind of Southern uh, boys, I mean, obviously, sadly, at this time, uh, just white boys uh, were raised. But uh, Southern boys of all classes were given a surprising amount of freedom as kids uh, so as not to limit their aggressiveness or to feminize them with a strict discipline that could break their spirits. So they were really allowed just to be little fucking maniacs, you know, to, I guess, to uh, become tough men or something. 
You know, reading about Doc, it does seem like, you know, a kid's got away with murder down in Georgia at that time, you know? Uh, yeah, as you'll see as the stuff goes on, actually, white dudes got away with all sorts of shit back around this time as they get older. Just, you know, get charged with murder in broad daylight then just pay a fine and, you know, get, go back in the saloon that night and have some more drinks. But, yeah, I guess the kids were just, you know, just let the boys be boys. But, Daddy, he, he's tearing the legs off of the family cat. And do not stop him. It'll ready him for later battle. The cat is making a man out of that boy. But daddy, he just squeezed a neighbor girl's breast and pinched her bottom. Good on him. Boy's got gumption. Preparing himself for fatherhood and creating a family. Daddy, he just killed a neighbor boy. All right, all right. I reckon I'll speak with him about it. The neighbors are poor folk, uh, not even rich or decent enough to have slaves, so it's not like the boy's life had tremendous value, but he was white. And I can't have my son killing white boys and not be given a stern warning to stop, so I'll talk to him tomorrow. Uh, yeah, it's fucking crap. At an early age, Southern boys learned independence, looked to take the, to the fields and the woods, and they began their tutelage and hunting, handling of firearms, horseback riding. They were also taught deference to their elders and learned that sir and ma'am required them in speaking to adults, whether highborn or low. Courtesy, spirit, and firmness were all part of the curriculum of individualism that Southern sons learned. But care was taken not to undermine their self-confidence or pride. From Doc's father came a sense of personal honor and discipline from his mom, came a sense of manners and principles of faith. Cousins, uncles, aunts, neighbors, you know, filled out the life of the growing child. Southern individualism, independence, and codes of honor meant that every Southerner, regardless of his station, was prepared to knock the hell out of whoever dared to cross him. Brawling, dueling, and lynching uh, existed in the South to a greater degree, uh, you know, than elsewhere in the country. They just, they wanted to stoke the fire in these, in these kids. Strange time in a strange place, and this is where Doc rose up. 1859... Doc's father, Henry, agrees to assume the guardianship of a young orphan named Alicia Pritchard, who moved in with the family, and the family prospered. Land holdings mounted, the town of Griffin grew, its population approaching 3,000 by the end of the decade, making it the largest city between Atlanta and Macon. Funny how different things were back then. It's just a t- fucking tiny-ass town now, but it was, it was, a, quite, it was a bustling metropolis of 3,000 people. Uh, offered amenities, amenities and opportunities found in few Georgia towns, including three colleges and a public library. Uh, and then on April 12th, 1861, the Civil War breaks out and war comes to Griffin. Camp Wilder becomes a training center for Georgia soldiers at Griffin, and the need was great enough that Henry Holiday sold 136 acres of his 147-acre farm for the establishment of another military training facility. The war fever has come to Doc's doorstep. He saw his hero, Uncle Thomas Sylvester McKee, who was now 21, don the uniform of the 5th Georgia Volunteers on September 2nd, 1861. Henry Holiday was commissioned as a major in the 27th Georgia Infantry. Doc, a.k.a. John Henry, found himself alone in a house full of women at precisely the age at which, uh, you know, most Southern boys began their apprenticeship as men. Uh, John Henry grew close and protective of his mother, kind of became a, a mama's boy in a sense, and she strove to make him a gentleman. And then unexpected tragedy struck. Remember uh, that, you know, uh, rather than lose his father uh, to the war, he began to lose his mother to the number one killer of the day, which was consumption. Yes, tuberculosis, a.k.a. consumption, in the mid-19th century was the leading cause of death in the U.S., accounting for uh, 20% of all deaths in the nation. And doctors knew uh, little about it because compared to today's doctors, uh, old-timey doctors were horrific. Just whiskey, laudanum, saw. Uh, Doctors considered consumption to be non-contagious and believed that it ran in families because unlike the best doctors of today who can run comprehensive blood tests, CAT scans, MRIs, etc., 19th century doctors were really just better than average guessers. You know, they would be uh, more right about diagnosing shit than your pig farming neighbor by like a little bit. 
Uh, women with consumption were encouraged to remain within the home and pursue uh, domestic responsibilities as much as possible, uh, which is the best way to spread around an airborne contagious disease like that. Just spread around the family. So good job, old-timey doctors. Oh, boy, you sure are coughing up a terrible storm. Uh, how about you shut all the windows and stay inside with the children all day? Make sure you're all breathing the same air. Sharing the air is good for your lungs. And if that doesn't work, try try cutting open a vein or two and bleeding things out. Maybe maybe your blood is just rotten. It's hard to say. I actually know very little about how the body works. Uh, young John Henry's responsibilities increased as well. He was now the man of the house in more than just name. His father, Major Holiday, came home to a different situation from the one he'd left. The war had already taken a heavy toll on commerce. Uh, goods were scarce. Crops were thin. Food was in short supply. His wife, Alice Jane, was virtually bedridden. Not the best of times. Uh, between August 1863 and 1864, uh, in April, Henry raised $23,700 in Confederate currency from the sale of real estate in Griffin and in Spalding County and moved his family to the little town of Valdosta in southern Georgia, a place he thought would be safe from northern aggression. In April 1864, John Henry found himself in a place completely unlike the red clay country of his childhood. Must have seemed like a wilderness to him. The pine and oak forest stretched over the rolling countryside for miles with little besides uh, wire grass under the canopy of the trees. And for a time, his father's relocation plan worked. Sherman's forces destroyed the Atlantic and Gulf Railroad tracks near Savannah and then further isolated Valdosta but didn't uh, actually approach into town. Then Sherman turned north uh, into South Carolina and southern Georgia was seemingly forgotten for the time being. In Valdosta, Doc would continue to receive the type of education afforded to only the select few in the mid-19th century. At the renovated Valdosta Institute, John Henry fit in well, already well-mannered and charming as the result of his mother's instruction and the experience of a large, well-educated family. He learned quickly both in the classroom and in the social arena. He was popular with the girls at dances and was considered a strong-minded, even cocky young man by his neighbors. And it was here... Uh, down in southern Georgia, where John Doc Henry pulled an Einstein, passed it on, and fell in love with his first cousin. Yep, uh, John Henry was 19 months younger than his 16-year-old cousin Maddie when she and her sister arrived in Valdosta. But he grew closer to her in the months that followed. He was discovering the mysteries of puberty, and Maddie was charming in the tradition of southern womanhood. She was a bewitching distraction during a tough period of Doc's youth. There's no proof they ever had a romantic encounter. Um, probably did, probably did, but, uh, you know. Uh, there's just a lot. There is a lot of circumstantial evidence that suggests uh, Doc, at the very least, did feel a lot of romantic love for Maddie, and that it was uh, reciprocated. And he would possibly feel it for the rest of his life, just like in the badass movie Tombstone, right? When he talked to fucking Wyatt about how he loved his cousin when he was a young man. Well, the marriage of first cousins was not uncommon in the 19th century. <laughs> Some families actually encourage it as a, as a means of controlling family property. Yep. Come on, Reginald. Why find a lady in town when you could you could find sexual satisfaction in your cousin, uh, who's been like a sister to you your entire life? Uh, you've grown up together. You you've seen each other naked as children. You you know what you're getting. Keep it in the fam, Reginald. Uh, do it for your daddy, uncle, grandpa. Our eyes aren't gonna keep getting closer together by spreading our genes apart. Uh, don't you want to be? Don't, don't you want a shot at a baby with two heads, Reginald? Uh, think how great that would be for the family. That that baby could marry itself. <laughs> in fact, uh, other first cousins in the Holiday family, I apologize if you have a two-headed baby. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I know the odds are low, but if any time suckers have a two-headed baby, uh, well, you know, it's fucking, every joke's going to have a victim. And that one was your two-headed babies. Okay. In fact, other first cousins in the Holiday family had married in the past. 
Uh, what made the difference in the case of John Henry and Maddie was that Maddie was Catholic. Um, <laughs> sorry, it's like, I always feel like an idiot when I make myself laugh. Like that's you shouldn't be able to do that. Uh, I, I that that struck me really funny this morning. The old two had a baby. Okay, not even John Henry's conver- uh, conversion to Catholicism would have made a difference though, because uh, canon law uh, forbade the marriage of first cousins. Uh, I got to say, when it comes to historical accuracy regarding Doc Holiday. Tombstone holding up uh, way better than I expected to, which makes me so happy. If you recall, when talking to, yeah, again, like I said, Wyatt about romantic love, you know, Doc Holliday, a.k.a. Val, best role of his life, Kilmer, yeah, talked about loving that cousin. Uh, and Doc Holliday would be unlucky in love, but he'd be lucky uh, with the war, despite many relatives, including his father, uh, fighting in the war. He, he didn't lose any uh, relatives to the war, at least not immediate ones or relatives he knew. Uh, but he would feel the effects of the war. Uh, it would be brought to his door. On September 27, 1865, Captain C.C. C. Richardson of the 103rd Regiment of U.S. Colored Infantry was headquartered at Thomasville, and units were distributed in towns like Quitman, Doctortown, Homerville, and Valdosta. Uh, Company G of the 103rd re- replaced the white troops in Valdosta and set up their uh, very substantial encampment between Patterson and, and Tomb Streets. Now, so troops arrived to protect the interests of former slaves and provide them with like social services. Uh, black soldiers were actually put in charge of the southern town that had had black slaves when they showed up. Uh, how fucking crazy w- would that have been just for everybody? Like, so there was enormous local resentment, obviously, amongst the white population. Uh, black soldiers are now arresting white plantation owners. I mean, they must just, the tears those plantation women must have been shed. But how, how could they do this, Father, when the world is turned upside down? Uh, young John Henry, he, he's on the southern side of all this, and uh, and his world specifically is turned upside down by the death of his beloved mother. On September 16, 1866, Alex Jane McKee, she dies. Uh, Doc mows her down in a duel, in a fucking gunfight, where he had a huge advantage uh, due to her battle with consumption and a lack of training with a firearm. Doc's mother had insulted young Doc's manhood. You don't do that to a southern boy. Asked him to wash some dishes. She was too ill to clean herself. You know, and Doc was like, wash some dishes? Do you reckon you now have a daughter, mother? Is that who you see stand before you? Ready yourself under the willow tree out front. We play for blood. (coughs) Doc, (coughs) please, uh, enough of this fooling. (coughs) Were you fooling, mother? I wasn't. I'm your huckleberry. And then when Alice was too sick to get out of her bed, too fucking chicken, too yellow, Doc just (coughs) mowed her down right where she laid. You're no daisy, mother. You're no daisy. No, of course that never happened. A young doc struggled with the loss of his mother. She died of consumption. Uh, by custom, the period of mourning was one year. Husbands and sons were to wear black for nine months and gray for three additional months. And that's just what doc did. However, unfortunately, his dad did not. His dad uh, kind of switched up the old grieving process and just uh, got a new wife almost immediately. Doc never forgave his father for this. Three months later, December 1866, doc's father marries his neighbor's daughter, 23-year-old Rachel Martin, really not that much older than doc himself. And, uh, and Doc immediately challenged both of them to duels and mowed them down where they stood. You're no daisy, Rachel. You're no daisy. No, he didn't do that either. Uh, there had been uh, no time for a proper southern courtship, so it was scandalous. Raised questions about the relationship between Henry and Rachel. Uh, as you know, very a lot of impropriety. Uh, John Henry, he's now an angry young man, as shown in this next example of what may have been his first attempt at a duel. So around this time during class, uh, John Henry gets into a heated argument with a classmate over some matter lost to history. Uh, John's opponent challenges him to a pistol duel with pistols, and John, no more than 15 at the time, accepts immediately. Well, the duel uh, really did just about happen. 
Uh, the two kids met at the edge of town with a crowd of onlookers. You know, the whole, like, after-school fight kind of vibe, but this time with uh, with guns. Two pistols are set out before each kid. Uh, when when John Henry, uh, you know, Doc, has offered his his choice of the pistols, John replies that he has his own. He has his own loaded pistol, and he, he's brought and freaks everybody out because it was supposed to have been a mock duel with pistols containing powder charges that wouldn't inflict actual injury. It was just all for show. And then Doc was like, I play for blood. I'm your huckleberry. Uh, and the kid he was ready to literally duel to the death with, you know, <laughs> scared shitless, apologizes, explains that the whole thing was a big misunderstanding. And then Doc, when he's satisfied that, you know, his, his honor has been saved, he agrees not to draw down on his classmate. Man, dude did not play. Uh, you're going to find that out as this episode goes on. You challenge Doc Holliday to a duel, you better not be bluffing because he will not be. Well, uh, cut to the summer of 1868. Young Doc leaves Valdosta. Uh, visits his, uh, his, his cousin Maddie once again, spending the summer with the 18-year-old beauty, and they get it on. So much so that for the rest of his life, Doc would refer to this summer and just summers in general as CF, uh, CFT. Excuse me. CFT is what he would call summer for the rest of his life. Cousin fucking time. You know, I do love the warm air of CFT. Spring is grand and fall can be breathtaking, but nothing makes me happier than the glory of CFT. The wet, humid, moist deliciousness that is CFT in the south. CFT in the north just isn't the same. It's not wet enough. No moisture in the air for that good old pressure-building CFT. <laughs> no, of course, they did not get it on. Uh, there were no Einstein. Pass it on. Uh, no, they dueled, and Doc killed her uh, when she insulted his manhood. Uh, of course, that did not happen either. Uh, Doc did seem to have designs on Maddie that others noticed. Some members of the family picked up on the budding romance between the two. Maddie's family in particular did not care for it, partially because of the Catholicism and also partially because, you know, Doc, uh, he was a, you know, hot-tempered young lad, and they uh, they didn't want their daughter marrying him. Uh, also that summer, Georgia is readmitted to the Union, and federal troops withdrew, but the friction of Reconstruction, not entirely over. 1868, also the year that John Henry decides to become a dentist. Dr. Lucien F. Frink, Mr. Frink, Dr. Frink. As, uh, was an ex-Confederate soldier who had served with an artillery unit during the war and recently arrived in Valdosta to become a dentist. Frank was only five years older than John Henry, probably knew him on a social level as well as a professional one. In September 1870, John Henry Holiday, with Dr. Frank's endorsement, arrives in Philadelphia uh, to begin his education as a dentist. The Pennsylvania College of Dental Surgery was one of the pre- most prestigious dental schools in the country. Uh, students faced a rigorous cl- curriculum in chemistry, mechanical dentistry, uh, metallurgy, Dental pathology, therapeutics, dental histology, uh, operative dentistry, physiology, anatomy, and microscopic anatomy, and surgery, as well as clinical instruction in operative and mechanical dentistry. In my brain, I just like – I see that they're like studying all this, and and then I just picture really it's just like a guy showing these other people how to use pliers on a pair of teeth. You just want to – you want to hold their foreheads here, and then you just want to pull as hard as you can. Uh, that's, that's, That's pretty much the gist of it. Uh, we have some different tools we'll go over today for ripping teeth through people's heads. Uh, you want to just get them licking up on whiskey and then just, uh, you know, let it rip. Uh, again, Tombstone's portrayal of Doc, pretty damn accurate. He was a southern lunger and an educated man, rare for a gunslinger and a gambler. So 872, 1872, excuse me, let's talk about that. It's a big year for Doc. He graduates on March 1st from dental uh, school, 1872, takes off to St. Louis to open a practice with a classmate. And it was there that he would meet the woman uh, who would be the major, uh, actually consummated romantic adventure of Doc's life. Uh, they would pretty much date off and on for almost the rest of his days. That's a uh, big nose Kate, and not even joking about that, uh, a.k.a. Kate Fisher. She would go by numerous aliases, but he has big nose Kate. 
is what, uh, if you're looking her up, uh, like in Western kind of historians, is what she's referred to as. Kate was born Mary Catherine Herony in Pest, Hungary, on November 7, 1850. And uh, and Doc meets her uh, near his office, near uh, Fuchs' office. This guy he was working with was a theater and a saloon, and one of the employees was a young woman named Kate Fisher. That was her alias at the time. She was, uh, again, born in uh, Hungary. Uh, almost a year before Doc, her parents immigrated to the United States in about 1860, settled in Davenport, Iowa with a bunch of other Hungarians. Uh, Kate Fisher was listed in the 1870 uh, census, living with eight other women. Seven, including Kate, were listed as whores. And by 1872, she was working at a saloon near Dr. Fuchs' new office where she'd meet 21-year-old Doc. Uh, and they'd date that spring and summer. Uh, again, Tombstone seems to be pretty accurate with its portrayal of Doc's lady. Uh, although she, they obviously made her uh, much more attractive in Tombstone than she appeared to be in, in regular life. I mean, yeah, her nickname really was, yeah, Big Nose uh, Kate. Guessing or at least hoping no one called that to her face. That's, that's, that couldn't have felt good. Really hoping Doc did not refer to her that way. Just, pleasure to meet you all. Now I'd like to introduce you to my girlfriend, Big Nose Kate. Sometimes I called her Honka. Sometimes Lady Toucan. Uh, sometimes Katie Woodpecker. Or sometimes I like to say, this is my Lady Kate. And no, that is not some kind of little baby arm pushing out of the middle of her face. That's actually a nose. And yes, she has a lady, not some kind of monster or uh, some kind of animal belonging in the circus. Y- yes, she is crying again right now, which uh, uh, sadly, in- instead of drawing sympathy, just makes her already huge nose uh, mu- very shiny and, and much more noticeable. Uh, that July, Doc and Kate would break up and-, and Doc would return to Georgia to claim a family inheritance from his mom. Yeah, m- yeah, buddy. Get that inheritance money. Man, having your parents' uh, parent die must always be hard. I'm not making light of that, but it has to sting a little less when you get a huge inheritance out of the deal, right? I'm just saying, you know, it's still not fucking good, but instead of losing a poor parent and then having to go into a little debt yourself to pay for their funeral, uh, you get some sweet cash. You're going to get a house or some shit. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what that would feel like. Uh, Doc moved in with John Styles Holiday that summer, spent another summer with his first cousin, John's uh, daughter, Maddie. Enjoying time with Maddie during the day, masturbating furiously each and every night. Uh, that's not in the history books. That's just an educated guess. Uh, that fall, Doc would go on to practice dentistry in Atlanta after meeting a prominent dentist there through family connections. Practicing at the office of Arthur C. Ford, DDS, at 26 Whitehall Street. He was now an upcoming southern gentleman, well-bred, educated, prepared for a successful professional life as a dentist. Life was looking grand in 1872. And then 1873 would be a shit show. Uh, 1873 does not start off on the best note. On January 13th, his adopted older brother Francisco, uh, Francisco, goddammit, uh, dies of consumption, leaving a young family behind. And while he may have, uh, you know, not wanted to believe it, by this time, Doc has also contracted the fatal disease. Now, it was hard to, it's hard to pinpoint exactly when Doc knew he had it because diagnosis in general was very tricky back then. Uh, at its outset, the disease left its victims with a, with a desperate hope that they didn't have consumption at all. Uh, even though the symptoms were, you know, dramatic, uh, accurate diagnosis, very difficult, the dry cough, the sore throat, the chest pains, the elevated pulse rate, difficulty breathing, were also symptoms of other much less serious and, you know, treatable ailments. On uh, John Henry's time, diagnosis was not based on identification of the tubercle uh, bacillus through medical testing, the microscope, and even the stethoscope played little role. Uh, diagnosis amounted to suspicion. Again, they were just kind of just, you know, less doctors, more just uh, good guessers. Just whiskey, laudanum, saw. Uh, Indian Springs, just a few miles from Griffin, was known as the Saratoga of the South, uh, which might explain why John Henry chose to move back to Griffin, you know, for the climate, because that was a big thing with, you know, consumption. You got to go to the 
place with a spa and a healthy spring. And it was all about the climate, um, the clean air, you know, various little towns in the south. You know, the arid climate of the southwest was thought to have curative powers of the disease. The arid uh, climates did actually uh, seem to help. Uh, yes. So uh, we touched a little upon that in the Billy the Kid Suck episode 25, talking about consumption back then. 1873 isn't all bad, though. Doc uh, also gets into some gambling in Atlanta in 1873, learning the game of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a popular game at the time. Uh, I've not played it myself ever. That's not nearly popular now. Described by one authority on 19th century gambling as the backbone of the professional gambler's repertoire and the prime vehicle for the seduction of moneyed innocents. Man, those guys wrote well back then. That's one thing I always notice, man, when I'm doing 19th century uh, U.S. stuff. The, the, the guys at the papers, holy shit, they write well. You, you go on some online legitimate quote-unquote news sources today, and I'm like, did a fucking eighth-grade dropout put this thing together? Like, I, I fuck up a lot on stuff, but do they just not use editors? You know, it's like just, um, back then, man, it's like these guys were just wordsmith. The seduction of moneyed innocence. It's beautiful. Sorry. It was a simple game with relatively close odds. Uh, Hoyle's uh, rules of games claimed that the odds in favor of the house were no more than 3% in an honest game. So, you know, it wasn't like a slot where you got like a fucking 10% chance of winning or some nonsense. Uh, in the post-Civil War period, it was uh, one of the most popular card games, and John Henry Holiday would spend a considerable portion – of his life, dealing it and playing it. And that's the game they'd be playing in uh, a lot of those tombstone scenes. Uh, also, in 1873, Doc headed west. Some people think it was because of consumption to reach those arid southern climates, uh, southwestern climates. You know, Probably not, though, since he just spent a considerable amount of time in Texas and Kansas, uh, or, he, or he would spend uh, when he left, which is you know places just as humid as Georgia. Could have been heartache why he left. Forbidden love, right? Definitive answers to the mystery of the relationship between Doc and Maddie uh, all my joking aside, will never be known because Maddie destroyed some of the letters they wrote each other uh, before her death, which sucks. We'll never have those. And after her death, a family member chose to burn the rest of her correspondence, you know, with Doc, uh, which is a real bummer. We don't get to see all those letters he wrote, you know, because she, she wrote him, you know, until he died, uh, you know, lots of letters. And while she became a teacher and then a nun and all that does paint an odd picture, right? Why destroy the letters? If there's nothing that could be uh, misconstrued as inappropriate. And why would a perfectly attractive Southern belle, she was rumored to be, never get married? Uh, especially one who did not seem to be a lesbian, you know, because that would happen back then. You know, people that couldn't come out and be a lesbian, but it was, was acceptable to be a nun. But, you know, she did have uh, younger flirtations with Doc and, and talked to him a lot. And, and it just, it just, it just uh, it paints an interesting picture. You know, why, why write him his whole life if there's no love? Uh, random trivia, Maddie would also be the inspiration for the character of Melanie Hamilton in Margaret Mitchell's novel Gone with the Wind. Margaret Mitchell, also a relative of Doc Holliday. However, there may have been another sinister uh, reason for Doc's departure that had to do with the new South Doc found himself living in. And this is my least favorite part of this episode. Uh, but, you know, uh, you, you don't get to just talk about the good parts uh, of your of you know interesting characters that you may like from history, and I think if you hide the bad parts, that's just not doing it justice. So you know, damn it, old South, why why does slavery and hardcore racism just have to fucking flow through all your stories? It's just time time you know these stories happen. So so Dodge City lawman Bat Masterson, who Doc you know again we we talked about him earlier. Doc would later meet and know for years, uh, who Doc would work for on several occasions, who had ample opportunity through the years to hear Holiday discuss his youth. Later explained that the indiscriminate killing. Of some Negroes, uh, his words, not mine, was the cause of John Henry's abrupt departure for the West. According to him, the young whites and blacks of Valdosta shared a swimming hole on the river until the whites decided they would no longer share it. 
And uh, Masterson would write, uh, quote, The Negro boys were informed that in the future they would have to go further downstream to do their swimming, which they promptly refused to do, and told the whites that if they didn't like existing conditions, that they themselves would have to hunt up a new swimming hole. One beautiful Sunday afternoon, while an unusually large number of Negroes were in swimming in the point of dispute, Holiday appeared on the riverbank with a double-barreled shotgun in his hands and pointing it in the direction of the swimmers, ordered them from the river. The blacks, quote, stampeded from the, uh, for the opposite shore, and Holiday waited until he got a bunch of them together and then turned loose with both barrels, killing two outright and wounding several others. Uh, and Masterson said that Holiday later justified what he did by saying that they had to be disciplined. So, super shitty, uh, tough pill to swallow, you know, when you're hoping to talk about a Wild West hero. However, uh, before you hate Doc too much, there also are many other variations on this tale. And, and again, Mas- Masterson, I will say, in all his recollections of Holiday, he always paints him in the worst possible light. And and they, you know, didn't seem to get along that well, you know, off and on when they were both alive and, you know, together. So there is that to consider, uh, you know, that whole consider the source. Uh, there is another uh, example variant of this story which involves Doc getting into a disagreement with uh, some African-Americans about the swimming hole, then getting into a fight with one of them. And then and then uh, one of these men uh, comes back with a shotgun, uh, shoots Doc, he gets a little bit of bird shot, and then he takes out a pistol and fires back and kills the guy in, you know, self-defense. So there's that possibility. There are other versions. And, and, there are no, and I will say with all the versions, none of them come from actual newspaper accounts. Uh, no, no variations of the tale. No firsthand accounts from any eyewitnesses, just old stories. So who knows? Sadly, considering when and where Doc was raised and the temper he had, very possible some variation is true. And, and, and uh, you know, doing this would explain a sudden move west to Galveston because, you know, 10 years before, sadly, uh, historically, he could have done that and faced no punishment at this time right after the Civil War. And if you remember this from uh, the KKK time suck – you know, the, the rights of African-Americans in like that first like five years after the war were actually much better than they would be for like the next 60, 70, 80 years uh, when things then regressed uh, severely. So, OK. So heading – so that's that. Uh, heading west, racist uh, product of his time, Doc, uh, briefly stopped in Galveston and then went on to Dallas in late 1873. Took a job as a dentist uh, there through another family connection. Uh, the railroad arrived on July 16, 1872, and in the year that followed, the town grew from a quiet Trinity River farm town of 1,200 to a burgeoning trade center of more than 7,000. Uh, yeah, it's funny how some of these uh, places that are huge cities today, uh, I guess, uh, you know, were just little towns uh, not that long ago. Initially, Doc's partnership seemed to prosper. Uh, in October, Holiday won prizes at the state fair for the best set of teeth in gold, <laughs> the best set of teeth in vulcanized rubber. And the best display of artificial teeth and dental wear. Man, just all gold teeth. How fucking weird. I guess we do see that sometimes in the hip-hop community. I, I do not like it. Uh, weirds me out a little bit. Just all gold teeth. It makes, to me, it makes you look like a, uh, like a James Bond villain. But I looked up vulcanized rubber teeth uh, with the Google image search. And you know what? Not bad. Like you hear rubber teeth. And I feel like you can think some pretty weird shit. You know, like I, I started thinking about like super bendy soft rubber teeth. Like like toy teeth or something like these weird toy soft rubber teeth. Um, you know, is it weird to think about uh, how, how that would look in somebody's mouth? Also weird to think about a man who become one of the most feared gunslingers of Tombstone, Arizona, uh, that not that many years prior to that, he was out making rubber teeth in, in Dallas. Um, and then on March 2nd, 1874, Holiday, for reasons unknown, left his partnership, opened his own office above the Dallas County Bank at the corner of Maine and Lamar. 
uh, young Dr. Holiday, in the parlance of the times, had slipped from the path of rectitude, of moral rectitude. He cared less about teeth, more about getting his drink on. Gonna get his drink on. Uh, which could have had something to do with his, his tuberculosis. You know, the, the liquor could have helped him cope with his pain. And, you know, in the gambling, a nice distraction from his own upcoming, you know, kind of uh, having to face his mortality. In, in April 1874, Doc is arrested for operating a, uh, a, a Keno game. And on May 12th, he was indicted for gambling. And then on June tw- uh, 21st, he told Dallas to go fuck itself, and he left for Denison. Now, Denison was another end of the track town just south of the Red River. was a wide-open gambling and drinking town suited to John Henry's new inclivities. Uh, Denison had a rough edge in Dallas. It was on the fringe of the Indian Territory, a uh, spot that had been the home of desperados, desperados, and ne'er-do-wells for years. Uh, holidays activities in Denison are unknown. No arrest records and no records of opening a dentist office there either. Uh, New Year's Eve, 1873, found a little time to stop back in Dallas for a shootout. The Dallas Weekly Herald provided the details. Dr. Holliday and Mr. Austin, a saloon keeper, relieved the monotony of the noise of firecrackers by taking a couple of shots at each other yesterday afternoon. The cheerful note of the peaceful six-shooter is heard once more among us. Both shooters were arrested. The cheerful note? What's fucking, this guy's a lunatic writing this. (laughs) That was a very weird tone for a shootout. Yesterday, things were going great downtown, and then they got even better. It was a nice, tranquil evening full of men shooting at each other and and blood flowing and skulls being peeled off of, uh, of the brains. I don't know. January 18, uh, 19, or, uh, excuse me, 1874, John Henry Doc Holliday charged with assault with intent to murder. A week later, on January 25th, he's tried and acquitted because this is the Wild West. And two gunslingers drawn down on each other, you know, uh, just wasn't a big deal. Wasn't that uncommon. You know, just boys will be boys. Just some southern boys having a little carefree fun. Uh, John left for an even rougher Texas town in 1874, Fort Griffin Flat. Don uh, Doc had been told that in little towns, uh, you know, that grew up around military posts such as this one, men were willing to take chances and had he had the opportunity to make some money, you know, doing some gambling there. That winter, uh, one of the more promising spots seemed to be Fort Griffin Flat, a sprawling little village that stood just a just a you know a little bit below Fort Griffin, one of the army's outposts in a cluster of forts on the central plains of of Tejas. Uh, Doc Holliday, with his uh, respectable reputation, wasted in Dallas saloons and gambling houses, took the stage west along the military roads. Uh, and then this post was crude but neat, and when Doc reached it, it was home to troops from the 10th Calv- Cavalry and the 11th uh, Infantry. And uh, one old-timer described the town this way, which is, man, paints quite a picture. Fort Griffin, when I arrived there, was the toughest place I'd ever seen. I believe there were eight or ten saloons there then, and... In addition, there were several dance halls. The Beehive Saloon and Dance Hall was the main one. Lewd women infested these places. And all of them had their little huts or shanties which sprawled along the bank of the Clear Folk of the Brazos River. Classic Wild West town, man. Love it. Ladies of ill repute, guns firing off in the middle of town, shitty warm whiskey being pounded by the gallon, money flowing around the faro tables. Oh, man, build Westworld already, somebody. I'm fucking ready to go. Uh, there were buffalo hunters, bullwhackers, soldiers, cowpunchers. That's actually a term I saw in a Wild West article. It's some cow punches. What does, it, what does he do? Ah, he punches cattle. Uh, that would be Ike uh, Cattle Punch McClannister. And he uh, he's punched probably 400, maybe even 500 head of cattle in the past few months. He's knocked out several. Uh, but there are, uh, you know, Indians, gamblers, toughs, so refined businessmen, fallen women. That was a term you see a lot back then. A fallen woman. Uh, just somebody who had sex out of wedlock. Mingling in, you know, uh, one common herd uh, uh, on, on the streets and in business houses. They're just hustling and bustling. Uh, Doc stayed in Fort Griffin uh, in 1875, 
And uh, that year, uh, he was arrested in Fort Griffin for playing at a game of cards at a house used for retailing spiritous liquor. Doc would later claim that some of the outlaws in Tombstone were part of the old Fort Griffin gang, such as Curly Bill Brocious. That's those cowboys in the gang, man. Curly Bill, head of the cowboys in the movie Tombstone, man, the man who killed Sheriff Fred White. Again, I love how much accuracy there actually happens to be in Tombstone. Uh, when Curly, uh, he, uh, Curly Bill meets Doc in Tombstone in the movie, you know, there's that scene where he clearly knows him, and that's uh, based in truth. After stopping at another few forts, Doc recalls spending part of 1875 in Denver. Uh, according to this scenario, uh, Doc dealt cards for John A. Babb in Denver through the rest of 1875, and then he joined a fresh invoice of Denver gamblers who arrived in Cheyenne, Wyoming on February 5th, 1876. Uh, John Charles Thompson claimed that Doc was there as well, writing in his history of Cheyenne. Run out of Texas because of his lethal propensities, the platinum blonde desperado tried Colorado, extinguished several gunmen there, came to Cheyenne and did right well at gambling. The reputation of his dour misanthrope with death gnawing on his lungs caused him to be unchallenged here. Jeff Carr, the town marshal, regarded him dourly, but courageous through the big, uh, oh, excuse me, but courageous though the big officer was, he didn't choose to take on a killer of Holiday's ruthless character. So you can see by 1876, man, he's clearly earning that reputation uh, that we know of him today as, you know, like the, the man not to be trifled with, you know, the reputation that led him to winning the bonus vote to become today's suck. Uh, after Wyoming, some biographers believe Doc uh, joined the Black Hills Gold Rush, moved to Deadwood for a time. Uh, one view claimed that he remained in Deadwood until spring 1877 when he returned to Cheyenne and Denver and route back to Texas, while another uh, returned Doc to Denver with Colorado statehood in August 1876 where he remained uh, until early 1877, gambling under the name Tom McKee. Uh, another view claims he made it to Billings, Montana, opened up a candy shop where the, you know, the candy would have traces of acid uh, that would erode the enamel of customers' teeth. And then once they had a mouthful of cavities, they'd need some dentures and just, pa! Holiday is right there to double dip, right? Creating cavities and pulling teeth, making all that tooth scratch, right? Making that enamel dough. I'm the only one who has that view of Doc's whereabouts since I just made that shit up. Uh, and by the way, that the couple murders referred to earlier, it is interesting, man, that, you know, like who knows how many people this guy killed because, you know, he wasn't totally a name, uh, you know, early on, uh, in his kind of, uh, being a little bit of an outlaw. And sadly, so there were just so many shootings and so many people getting killed back then. They just, they really didn't keep track of everything that well. Uh, so big nose Kate shows back up in doc's life in 1876. Now going by the name Kate elder. She's fined for prostitution using that name in the summer of 1874 in Wichita, uh, Wichita, Kansas. Bessie Earp, wife of James Earp, and Sally Earp, who was the, the consort of Wyatt Earp at that time from Peoria, Illinois, uh, were also arrested. Uh, 1875, uh, Kate had left Wichita for Dodge City, where she went to go work at a dance hall and brothel. And then she made it back to St. Louis, where she would claim to run into Doc. Uh, while no marriage certificate exists, she would later claim that she married Doc on May 25th, 1876. I doubt it. Uh, for reasons that aren't clear, Doc and Kate travel separately for roughly the next year. Uh, they, they would always have a very kind of complicated, tumultuous relationship. Uh, while the details of exactly what crimes he committed around this time are hard to verify, he, he was earning enough of a reputation as an outlaw uh, that the Pinkerton agency, agency excuse me, came looking for him. Members of the Holiday family later claimed that uh, that summer that Pinkerton agents called on the John Stiles Holiday household back in Georgia asking for photographs of John Henry and that one of the girls quickly removed his picture from the family album, hid it under her dress before handing over the album to the agents. So if this incident did occur, uh, the reason we'll never know, never revealed. So maybe the Pinkertons were after Doc because he cut some dude's fucking face up, almost killed him that year in Denver because that happened. 
Uh, the time of Doc Holliday's death in 1887, one of the newspaper obituaries uh, mentioned an 1876 fight between Doc and another gambler named Bud Ryan, in which Doc slashed Ryan with a knife, and according to the report, Doc, quote, was a quiet, modest man with a smile that was childlike and bland. But one night, he electrified the town by nearly cutting the head off of Bud Ryan, a well-known Denver gambler. So, damn, that was a serious bar fight, man, when you almost cut some dude's head off. Uh, and crazy that it really didn't seem to make the local news when it happened. You know, shows up in the obituary. I think that would make national news today if somebody just, you know, almost cut somebody's head off. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. By January uh, 1877, Doc was back in Dallas, and there were two gunfights in Dallas within a matter of days after he returned. Possibly coincidence. Also possible he was involved in one or both. Uh, the former dentist was now a hardened professional gambler. John C. Jacobs, who'd meet him uh, later that year at Fort Griffin, remembered him as follows. This fellow Holiday was a consumptive and hard drinker, but neither liquor nor the bug seemed to face him. He could at times be the most genteel, affable chap you ever saw. And at other times he was sour and surly, and would just as soon cut your throat with a villainous-looking knife he always carried, or shoot you with a forty-one caliber double-barreled derringer he always kept in his vest pocket. Uh, Doc may have also visited Fort Worth, San Antonio, other points south, uh, west of Dallas in 1877. On July 4th, uh, 1877, uh, Holiday had an altercation with another gambler named Henry Kahn, a relative of Dallas's prominent clothiers, and he caned the son of a bitch. Caned him on fucking Independence Day, right? You heard me. That's right. He caned him. Took a cane out and just fucking beat him in the street, which apparently was a Southern tradition because it was written about in this one article as, 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 he re, as him reviving his Southern tradition of just fucking beating the shit out of someone with a stick. Well, the police intervened, hauled both men off into court, and then they were fined and let go because that's yeah, – you could just – you could take a stick – and just beat the shit out of somebody uh, in the middle of the street. And the police will be like, all right, all right. Just come down to the courthouse. $10, and then you're on your way. Please don't beat anybody with a stick anymore today. How fucking crazy is that, man? If you could just go back in time with just a lot of money, you could just, like, do crazy shit and just, just keep paying fines. Okay, stop killing people. You killed four people today. You're going to have to double your fines. Um, well, later that same day, the two dudes meet again. Uh, Khan did not appreciate being caned, and he shot Holiday, and seriously wounded him. Took him a little bit to recover. Of course he came back and shot him, man. He got his ass beat with a cane. That's that's painful and embarrassing. Uh, the cause of the dispute escaped documentation, but a form of the story did make the pa papers. Uh, on Ju July 7th, the Dallas Daily Herald reported, Our reporter was told in Fort Worth yesterday that a young man named Doc Holiday, well known in this city, was shot and killed at Breckenridge last Wednesday by a young man named Khan. Well, uh, the report was wrong, reports, uh, clearly. Reports of Doc's demise had, had been greatly exaggerated. Uh, Doc recovered and was arrested again for gambling in Dallas in September and headed back for Fort Griffin. Uh, when he got back, uh, he opened an account at Smith's Bar in Fort Griffin on September 14, 1877. And within a week, he had amassed a liquor bill of $120 while spending just over $20 total for room and meals during the same time. Oh, that is hilarious. That is definitely the Doc Holiday from Tombstone. You just, well, I've not yet begun to defile myself. Uh, he and Kate Elder also reunited in Fort Griffin, uh, lived the type of crazy life to pick the once again in Tombstone. Here's a story about one of their nights in Fort Griffin told by someone who watched a few nights of Doc's gambling endeavors. I remember well one instance where a lot of money changed hands and Lottie Dino combing about $3,000 ahead, winning it all from Doc Holiday at the Beehive. It seems that Holiday had won over $3,000 in the layout from Mike Fogarty, who operated the gambling resort, when Lottie Denno, uh, who, who was lookout for Fogarty, promises to Holiday that she be given a chance to recoup Fogarty's losses. Holiday agreed to this, and the game was resumed with a $50 limit. 
The game did not last very long, for Lottie Denno copped every bet and left Doc Holliday completely strapped for the time being at least, for he was not one who let poor luck get him down and keep him there. He got into a poker game the very next night and won $500 in a diamond ring from an army officer stationed at the fort. Just the fucking, that's crazy. This guy's just, you know, uh, making fortunes for the time, losing them, eh, just whatever, just going on, just drinking and gambling. Just, again, it's like out of a movie. Another story of Fort Griffin, uh, some more uh, Doc Holiday drama, claimed that Kate grew jealous of local gambling hall owner and former prostitute, this Lottie Dental. And one night, Kate accused her of trying to steal her man. And supposedly, Lottie sprang to her feet, used a pistol, shouting, Why, you low-down slinking slut, if I should step in soft cow manure, I would not even clean my boot on that bastard. I'll show you a thing or two. And then uh, both Lottie and Kate drew weapons. Doesn't say if it was guns or knives, but I love they drew weapons. And I guess bloodshed was only avoided by Doc Holliday stepping in between them. <laughs> That's fucking crazy. Again, uh, just wild, wild times back then. Doc and Kate take a brief break from Fort Griffin at some point in 1877, head to Laredo. Crossed the Rio Grande in Piedras Negras, gambling and working a bit as a dentist in Mexico, and then back to Fort Griffin to accumulate some more good stories like this one. This is one of my favorite stories this episode. It's just so bananas. Uh, Doc decided to put some money on a foot race between two men in Fort Griffin in 1877, and then a little drama kicked off when he caught wind that the man he needed to win a foot race, uh, uh, that he needed to win, you know, the man he had money on, started to have second thoughts. Well, a local named Sam Dietrich, a one-armed freighter, fancied himself a racer. So the gamblers brought in a character called Sugarfoot to go up against. And I said man versus man, eh, kind of. Sugarfoot uh, was also known as Bojangles. One-armed man versus three-legged one-eyed dog. Classic Wild West man and dog race. Actually, the sport of greyhound racing did come out of the Wild West, boomtown sport of men racing dogs. Uh, used to be two, three dogs going up against two, three men, usually cowboys. And the cowboys were allowed as long as it was on the run, to shoot the dogs they raced against to make it a little more fair. And the dogs were trained uh, to be especially vicious and to attack the cowboys before they could draw down on them. I guess it was, you know, some real just kind of cool shit to watch. You know, it was crazy. Uh, just like some Mad Max kind of Wild West hybrid shit uh, that actually never happened because I made it up. That was, that was fun to make that up. Uh, but a one-armed man named Dietrich really did race against a man named Sugarfoot, uh, which I just think is, is interesting. And men really did bet on this race. And the gamblers bet heavily on Dietrich uh, against their own man. Even Sugarfoot quietly placed bets on Dietrich, so he's going to throw the race. And then Doc Holliday uh, uh, shows up in a wagon, and, and, and a witness named Baldwin recall, recalled he stepped over and said, Boss, what kind of race is this? I've got a lot of money to bet on this. And they said, you know, it, you know it, it's up, it's going, and they tell him the deal. And he said, my idea, Sugarfoot could win this race. And, uh, and he clearly knew that uh, Sugarfoot, you know, was, was going to take a fall. And he said, Sugarfoot, you know you could. Sugarfoot, who, again, was planning to throw the race, you know, let the other guy lose, said, I, I don't know. And then Doc stepped over to his wagon, picked up a double-barreled shotgun, and said, Boys, you know that Sugarfoot can beat Dietrich and can win it. There are 16 buckshot in each barrel, and I'm going to empty it into Sugarfoot if he don't win it. And then Sugarfoot ran, I'm guessing, the fastest he'd ever ran in his life. And he destroyed Dietrich and easily won the race. And then Doc walked over to collect his money and said, I know he could beat him. Yeah, that's, uh, that's Doc Holliday. 1878, Doc would meet Wyatt Earp in Fort Griffin, the man he'd help out numerous times in gunfights, including the infamous showdown at the OK Corral, the man he'd become lifelong friends with. Uh, Doc also found time to stab another poker player in Fort Griffin. Uh, and again, this is for the Tombstone people. You remember that scene from Tombstone when he stabs uh, that guy at the card table? You know, why Ed Bailey? You look like you're about ready to bust. And then, you know, the doc calls Bailey, and the hand beats him again and says, isn't that a daisy? 
And then a little later, after a holiday reveals his gun, when Bailey tries to, you know, starts yelling at him and cursing at him, uh, uh, ba- Bailey says, guns don't scare, or Bailey says, guns don't scare me. Wow, without those guns, you ain't nothing but a skinny lunger. And then Doc sets his guns on the table and says, Ed, what an ugly thing to say. I deplore ugliness. Why, Ed, if I thought you weren't my friend, I, I just don't think I could bear it. And then he puts his guns on the table, you know, there. Now we can be friends again. And then Ed rushes Holiday and Hollywood uh, just fucking turns him and stabs him right in the ribs. Well, turns out maybe that was not as Hollywood as I once thought. Doc really did stab a man at a card table named Ed Bailey over a poker disagreement and did stab him right there in the ribs where the film depicted it. Uh, so again, man, uh, and, and you know, like the movie. And, and also like the movie, he and Kate had to flee town to avoid legal trouble. And then they made it to Dodge City. That spring, Doc and Ked, uh, they headed north to Sweetwater. From there, took the wagon to Dodge City, Kansas, where they met up with Wyatt Earp, who would uh, end up killing a man as a, as a deputy marshal in Dodge City. Dodge City in 1878 had a reputation for wildness and violence, so of course, Doc felt right at home. Uh, Doc arrived as the town was preening itself for the cattle season. Sixteen saloons, ranging from upscale operations such as the Long Branch to the, and the Alamo to Southside Dives. Dodge seemed primed, uh, primed for profit for a man like Doc Holliday. And he decided he'd stay a while. So he set up uh, his old uh, dentist office. He sent uh, uh, for his old dentist supplies, had them you know, shipped up from Texas where his chair was. And when his chair arrives in June, he, he posted the following notice in the Dodge City Times saying, John H. Holiday, dentist, very respectfully offers his professional services to the citizens, citizens of Dodge City and surrounding county during the summer. Uh, Holiday apparently initially behaved himself in Dodge City because his name did not show up in either the press or in the police court records. Bat Masterson, yeah, we remember him, the guy who's always writing about Doc, who, who first met Doc in Dodge, provided perhaps the most familiar portrait of Doc in his, in his 1907 Human Life series. Uh, he, was a, he was a slim of build and sallow of complexion, standing almost 5 feet 10 inches and weighing no more than 130 pounds. His eyes were of a pale blue and his mustache was thin and of a sandy hue. I guess uh, that was describing him while he was in Dodge City. Doc uh, does end up saving Wyatt's life in Dodge City, uh, cementing that lifelong friendship. Wyatt Earp would later say, I'm a friend of Doc Holliday because when I was a city marshal of Dodge City, Kansas, he came to my rescue and saved my life when I was surrounded by desperados. In a more dramatic statement, Ghost written for him, uh, Earp said that Doc saw a man draw on me behind my back. Look out, Wyatt, he shouted. But while the words were coming out of his mouth, he had jerked his pistol out of his pocket and shot the other fellow before the latter could fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite opening the dentist's office and seemingly enjoying his stay in Dodge City, Doc and Kate do head out again at the end of uh, 1878. Man, the guy was always on the go. Uh, the decision to move may have been based on an August 6, 1878 decision by the town council to outlaw gambling. I'm guessing that had a lot to do with it. Also, gambling opportunities, uh, you know, just declined uh, at the end of cattle season. was as many cowboys uh, for, the, for him to take their money. And, uh, and then Doc himself would later claim that he left town because he was falsely accused of burglary. Uh, the real reason, probably his consumption, though. Kate later claimed that she and Doc left Dodge for Las Vegas, New Mexico to take advantage of the famous Montezuma Hot Springs near the town that was already becoming a mecca for consumptives. He was not a healthy man at this time. He looked very sickly and incessantly coughed. Uh, Doc was moving into the second phase of consumption while he was in Kansas. His voice was beginning to develop a deep hoarseness. As a result of throat ulcers that would periodically make it difficult for him to speak above a whisper or even eat. His cough became more severe, constant, debilitating, producing a thick, dark mucus of greenish hue with yellow streaks laced with pus. Sounds terrible. Uh, the cough was attended by hectic fever that rose and fell with an accelerating pulse rate. 
The fever contributed to a ruddy complexion sometimes that would seem uh, deceptively healthy and then would alternate back and forth between that and a death-like paleness. And again, uh, in the movie, they, they fucking nailed it. He was a very pale uh, Val Kilmer's portrayal. He and Kate initially took the train as far as Trinidad, Colorado, and according to Bat Masterson, within a week from the time Doc reached Trinidad, Doc had shot and seriously wounded a young sport by the name of Kid Colton or Kid Dalton over a very trivial matter. Uh, Masterson claimed that it was this incident that forced Doc to move on yet again. And again, rumors of incidents like this one would be attributed to Doc more and more frequently until he got too sick with, with TB to draw down on anyone anymore. Uh, Doc and Kate then settled at Montezuma Hot Springs in Galenas Canyon, a few miles northwest of the town's plaza where there was a spa. Uh, once Doc's tuberculosis seemed under control again and weather permitted, Doc and Kate moved into quarters on the plaza in Las Vegas, New Mexico. Uh, Las Vegas was a stable, well-established community. Doc and Kate wintered there in what was perhaps the quietest environment they'd known in years. Later, when his health got a little better, Doc opened up an office near the plaza in a building that also housed a tubercular, a young jeweler named William Leonard. Uh, unfortunately, the territorial legislature passed a law against gambling that winter, and uh, on March 8th, 1879, uh, you know, about that uh, Doc was uh, fined with $25 because he, he did keep a gaming table called Monty, and then he and Kate were out. No gambling, no Doc Holiday. You know, not going to let me gamble? All right, I'll find a new town. Uh, he headed north uh, toward the end of the track. For the railroad being built into New Mexico, where he uh, caught the train to Dodge City, and he left without Kate. She chose to remain in New Mexico, uh, uh, in the little globe, a little town called Globe, New Mexico, for reasons unknown. Well, once back in Dodge in 1879, Doc assists uh, Bat in in the organization of a group of fighters for the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad. Sheriff Masterson had received a telegram from officers of the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Road, uh, Railroad at Canyon City asking if he would bring a posse of men to assist in defending the workmen uh, on that road from the attacks of Denver and Rio Grande men who were, again, endeavoring to capture the long-contested pass through the canyon. So this is this is crazy, man. It's like a railroad fight, uh, which reminds me of a, of a Western TV show I got pretty into for a while called Hell on Wheels, and it just you know, which was about all this crazy shit that went on with 19th century building on the railroads, head west, you know, because they're going through virtually lawless territory, lawless in the sense that there just wasn't enough cavalry and sheriffs and deputies to defend all the little outposts springing up as railroad tycoons competed to become the the first to connect the east and west coasts, make piles and piles of money, taking people out west, bringing gold and other goods back east. And so they would just uh, form these, like, posses, which are just, you know, like, private security, I guess, you know, would be the nicest way to refer to them. Just a, just a, a gang would be the worst. <laughs> and, and these guys would sometimes, like, have to fight fucking posses from other railroads if they were trying to sabotage their railroads. Just craziness. So Holiday does that for a while for Batmasters, and then he heads back to New Mexico, settles in the little railroad town of Otero, north of Las Vegas. The town had a boomtown flavor that he liked. Uh, he settled into a dental practice once again. And in that spring, Otero got bypassed by the railroad, so it's no longer the, the spot to be. It, it almost gets literally boxed up, I guess, almost the whole town, and they just basically ship it via Santa Fe to be reassembled at Las Vegas. And, uh, and so Doc follows. Uh, Doc saw opportunity in Las Vegas and opened up a saloon. Uh, Las Vegas had more than its fair share of gamblers, con men, whores, thugs, and vagrants, all the usual flotsam uh, that followed boom camps. Among them was a former Army scout from the 5th Cavalry named Mike Gordon, who I guess had a weakness for women. And one night, on July 19th, this Gordon character got drunk and was rejected by a woman. He then flew into a rage, started shooting his pistol around, as people did back then, uh, you know, in the middle of fucking town. Apparently one of the bullets, according to a, a later account again by Masterson, whizzed a couple of inches from Holiday's head and went crashing through a window at the rear of the room. Well, then Doc drew his gun, rushed to the front door, saw Gordon standing on the sidewalk with a revolver in his hand, 
Gordon raised his revolver to fire a second time, but before he could pull the trigger, Doc had shot him dead. Uh, Doc was never charged in this incident, but was charged over the next few months with a few gambling crimes. Also worth noting, during that summer, Holiday may have played cards, I think this is awesome, with Jesse James and Billy the Kid, as they both were reportedly in town between July 26th and the 29th, even having dinner together with other locals at the new Las Vegas Hotel at Montezuma Hot Springs. Man, that's the coolest Wild West dinner ever. Jesse James, Billy the Kid, Doc Holiday. Ah. And then Wyatt Earp also took off for Las Vegas in 1879, uh, leaving his position as lawman in Dodge City. Earp headed west uh, with a young woman named Maddie Blaylock, his brother Jim, and Jim's family. Jim Earp, not in the movie. Uh, Tombstone is he was not a lawman or gunfighter. He was a saloon keeper, lesser-known Earp brother. Maddie was in the film, and her character, a serious opiate addict, hooked on laudanum, uh, is who I got the inspiration to add laudanum, uh, that, that little line, to that bit I did in, in on, on my Don't Wake the Bear comedy special, talking about like old-timey doctors. Just a whiskey laudanum saw, all inspired by Tombstone. Uh, after Wyatt arrives in Las Vegas, he and his crew and Doc and Kate moved to Prescott, a town that proved to be interesting to both John Henry and Kate. They moved into a hotel while the Earp party looked for their brother Virgil. But when the Earp clan pulled out for Tombstone in mid-November, Doc and Kate initially stayed behind. Doc was now completely done with being a dentist. His consumption most likely made that impossible. You know, people don't want to get their uh, teeth worked on, have their mouth open with some dude fucking coughing all over their face. Uh, he made no effort to establish a dental office there or anywhere else the rest of his days. He was a professional gambler now anyway. And he found his place on Whiskey Row, Prescott's gambling district, passing the winter there with Kate. And then Doc received a letter from Wyatt Earp urging him to come to Tombstone. Doc and Kate quarreled over the letter as she told him that she would not go to Tombstone, Arizona, saying, if you're going to tie yourself to the Earp brothers, so go for it. I'm going to Globe. And again, she's referring to Globe. It's Globe, Arizona. I said it in New Mexico earlier. I was wrong. Globe, Arizona. Another little mining, clamp, uh, mining camp excuse me, found in 1875. She, uh, she said that Doc replied, all right, I will be in Globe in a few days too. I don't think it, I will like it in Tombstone anyway. Uh, they traveled as far as the little stagecoach stop of Gillette together. And then part of company, Doc going to Tombstone, Katie going to Globe. And then, you know, she later added, you know, I didn't hear from Doc for quite some time. Doc uh, didn't stay in Vegas long for his initial trip and ended up actually, uh, um, uh, he, he did stay there long enough, excuse me, to get into another gunfight with a man named Charlie White. Uh, everywhere he goes, talk of him in another gunfight. While, while in town, Doc learned that White was working as a bartender in an old town saloon. And they'd had previous run-ins uh, going back to Dodge City, and they did not care for each other. Some bad blood in between them. A witness to the shootout described what happened, saying, Doc entered the saloon with a cocked revolver in his hand and began hostilities at once, without previously making his presence known. White was in the act of serving some thirsty customers, but recognizing his old enemy from Dodge City, he ducked behind the bar just in time, with the customers ducking to the floor. White emerged uh, with a six-shooter, and the duel began in dead earnest, many shots being exchanged in short distance without effect. Now, the meeting was so sudden that both participants were evidently somewhat off their accustomed good marksmanship. But finally, White did drop to the floor, and Holiday thought that he got him. He f- thought that he fulfilled his mission in Las Vegas, and he just left. And then a doctor was called at once for White, and it was found that while the bullet did uh, you know, hit him, it just grazed him. And, and, it, and it had been so near his spine, I guess it kind of stunned him temporarily. And then he was up and around in a couple of hours and just as good as ever. Now, I've read a lot about Wild West gunfights just in my adult life, and it is amazing how often something like this happens. Uh, two dudes get into a shootout. One dude assumes he kills the other man, and then he just takes off, and, and the other guy actually lives. He never checks. I remember one story about the same two dudes who got into three separate showdowns over a few years' time. Now, one of the guys thought he killed the other guy the first two shootouts. 
But that's but that's that, that other guy lived through both of those. And then the third shootout, the guy uh, <laughs> that you know lost the first two rounds, kills the first guy. Uh, you know, kills him dead. And I, and I guess the moral of that story is, if you ever get into a shootout and the other guy goes down, take a moment to walk over and make sure he's dead. Uh, you know, before you leave, because he could come back to kill you. He's obviously he obviously has an axe to grind. You've been shooting at each other. Uh, Doc's, Doc left Las Vegas and most likely returned to Prescott, uh, moving into a boarding house on Montezuma Street, still without Kate, still writing letters, probably romantic ones, to his cousin back in Georgia. Guessing his cousin love may have had something to do with, uh, you know, he and Kate's on-again, off-again relationship. Or, you know, maybe he just couldn't handle her giant nose sometimes and he just needed a break so he could sleep through the night without, you know, old, old Katie Chainsaw Schnoz, you know, snoring him awake all the time. Uh, back in Prescott, Doc shared quarters with Richard E. Elliott, uh, a minor and temperance advocate, John uh, J. Gosper, Secretary of Arizona Territory. You know, he gambled. He also met John H. Behan, a politician who you can also see portrayed in the Tombstone movie, the greatest movie of all time. And uh, in Prescott, Doc heard constant talk of all the money to be made, the mining boom town of Tombstone, a town that just had the richest silver strike Arizona had ever seen. And late that summer of 1880, Doc left Prescott, most likely in August, pausing in Tucson before moving on to Tombstone in September and reuniting with Wyatt. And once in Tombstone, the liquor and gambling houses became Holiday's homes. Uh, though it still had the look and feel of a newly born mining camp, Tombstone boasted a more urbane and stable business community than most boom towns. There were not only plush saloons, but also fine hotels, a public library at Jay Goldtree and Company's cigar store, uh, complete with a carpeted and well-decorated reading room. There was a school under construction. There was also Freemasons, the Illuminati. Space lizards had already invaded the town. Of course they did. The silver mine broke into one of their underground lizard lairs. Uh, there was a brass band, a miners' union, a miners' hospital, uh, you know, the the Home Dramatic Association, the Tombstone Social Club, a fire department, two daily newspapers, a variety of other social and political clubs. Uh, not long after Holiday settled in, uh, the San Francisco Exchange predicted that Tombstone was destined within a year or two to be as important as place as Leadville or Virginia City. Now, I've been to Virginia City. That's a cool town in northern Nevada if you ever get a chance to go. A very cool-looking old Wild West town that they've, uh, you know, Kind of kept up very, very nicely. It was also a culturally diverse population that included Hispanics, Chinese, Irish, other immigrants. It was a volatile mix, real potential for trouble. Fred White, the 32-year-old town marshal, had his hands full. Fights, shootings, and killings gave the town what George W. Parsons called a hard reputation. Now, I will say that the movie Tombstone took a pretty big liberty with the casting of the character of Fred White. In real life, he's 32 years old uh, when Doc arrives in town. And the movie's about 65, which I guess just made it more dramatic when Curly Bill would shoot him down in the street. Uh, by the time Doc arrives, Wyatt and Virgil Earp are lawmen, and uh, they've already had some run-ins with the Cowboys and raised hell in town. You know, uh, The Cowboys were uh, a gang of sorts that robbed cattle, stagecoaches, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and they were the gang that would come back for some serious vengeance later. And yeah, the Earps had arrested a few Cowboys for some cattle thieving. And the Earps' history, history in this town is interesting. For a few years, they'd be lawmen sometimes. Then there would be they'd be accused of certain things sometimes. Uh, yeah, just like weird how people just kind of like uh, like a game of musical chairs or something, or just I don't know what analogy I'm trying to think of. <laughs> but sometimes the the same guy who'd be the sheriff would be you know the the town fucking crook the next the next year. Anyway, Doc settled into town initially as a faro dealer. He got, also got a, uh, into a gun and fist fight with the local bartender, Milton E. Joyce, shortly after arriving. Of course he did. Two men got into a fight in the street where at close range, Doc shot him in the hand, and then Joyce smashed Doc in the head with a pistol hard enough for some witnesses to think he'd killed him. Uh, Doc did survive and was charged with assault with a deadly weapon with intent to kill, and he had to pay a $20 fine and $11.25 in court costs. 
Jesus. Uh, later in Tombstone, the scene where Curly Bill got drunk and started firing his gun around, and then Sheriff White tried to disarm him only to be shot, really did happen. Uh, so Sheriff White is killed by Curly Bill. Wyatt Morgan and Virgil Earp really were there to grab Curly Bill and put him in jail. Uh, in the movie, Curly Bill gets out just a few days later. In the, uh, yeah, in, 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 in real life, he spent more time uh, behind bars, but did get uh, released due to the shooting being attributed to an accident rather than murder. And again, man, unbelievable how many people would shoot each other and then just get like let off, acquitted, uh, small fine. Uh, like the movie, there really were all those cowboy gang members like Johnny Ringo. Ike Clanton, remember him? If you've seen that, law dogs don't go around here. Law dogs don't go around here. Uh, even Johnny Tyler, played by Billy Bob Thornton, was a real dude. Wyatt Earp really did physically drag Johnny Tyler out of a saloon at one point. Uh, Doc and the Earps worked all sorts of jobs, mining claims, gambling, security, you know, all sorts of things. Uh, unlike the movie, Doc did get into a fair amount of legal trouble in Tombstone, uh, charged with various crimes leading to firing his gun drunkenly in town, part- participating in shootouts. Uh, even charged with attempting to rob the U.S. mail and murder. These charges were dismissed for lack of evidence. There would also be rumors that the, the Earps were involved in some of these crimes. Uh, Wyatt Earp was, you know, uh, not quite the law-abiding citizen in real life that he was portrayed as in the movie. You know, again, it wasn't that simple as the Earp brothers and Doc were the good guys and the Cowboys were the bad guys. Uh, Wyatt was even arrested by his own brother Virgil once in, in Tombstone for disturbing the peace and fighting in violation of city ordinance. These guys were just all fucking nuts. You know, you know, one day they're lawmen, the next day they're pulling a gun on someone for insulting them at a poker game. It was anarchy in these towns at this time. Uh, Doc's lady, Big Nose Kate, eventually makes it to Tombstone, gets arrested several times for altercations with other women uh, and for basically being a drunken mess in public, just being a human shit show. Uh, she was arrested once for turning her head so fast. Uh, she turned her head, excuse me, too fast, and she knocked out an elderly woman with her, with her baby arm nose. So, you know, that, that probably wasn't as fair. You know, she can't help it if, you know, she heard a loud noise, she turned her head quick and knocked some lady down. <laughs> All right, maybe that never happened. Interesting to me was finding out that uh, part of Kate and Doc's relationship troubles at the time revolved around Kate hating the Earps. This is very unlike the movie. She hated that Doc was friendly with men she considered to be legal gangsters. Kate would always talk poorly about the Earps. Uh, she would uh, go on to accuse them later in life of hiring someone to kill her, uh, accuse them of robbing a stagecoach, being involved in murders. Uh, after a year or so in Tombstone, thanks to a variety of charges against him, uh, possible murders that have never been confirmed and several altercations that were witnessed, Doc is now recognized as, as one of the more dangerous men in a dangerous town. Uh, he really was the bad motherfucker you see in the movie Tombstone. People were, you know, nervous around the guy. And he was also healthier in Tombstone than he'd been in years. The arid climate of Tombstone really kind of kept his tuberculosis at bay for a little while. And then there is the most famous Doc Holiday Tombstone story, his involvement in the shootout at the OK Corral on October 26, 1881. Well, on the morning of October 5th, Ike Clinton, a lot of dogs don't go around here, and Tom McClary came into Tombstone for supplies. Over the next 24 hours, the two men had several violent run-ins with the Earps and their old friend Doc Holliday. Around 1.30 p.m. on October 26, Ike's brother Billy rode into town to join them along with Frank McClary and Billy Claiborne. The first person they met in the local saloon was Doc Holliday, who, who was delighted to inform them that their brothers had been pistol-whipped by the Earps. Well, Frank and, and Billy immediately leave the saloon, vowing revenge. Well, then around 3 p.m., the Earps and Holliday spot the five members of the clanton McLaurie gang, some of those cowboys, in a vacant lot behind the OK Corral at the end of Fremont Street. They approach the men with Doc uh, you know, uh, the men... And, and it doesn't take long before shots are fired. The famous gunfight that ensued lasted all of about 30 seconds, during which time around 30 shots were fired. 
And though it's still debated who fired the first shot, most reports say the shootout began when Virgil Earp pulled out his revolver, shot Billy Clanton point-blank in the chest, while Doc Holliday almost simultaneously fired a shotgun blast at Tom McLaurie's chest. Uh, the Wyatt, Oop, uh, Wyatt Earp excuse me, wounded Frank McLaurie, another McLaurie, with a shot in the stomach. Frank managed to get off a few shots before collapsing, as did Billy Clanton. When the dust cleared, Billy Clanton and the McLaurie brothers were dead, and Virgil and Morgan Earp and Doc Holliday were wounded. Ike, Claire, uh, Ike Claiborne and Claire, uh, Ike Clanton, excuse me, and Claiborne had run for the hills. So again, just like uh, Ike uh, really does in the movie. Sheriff John Behand of Cochise uh, County, uh, who witnessed the shootout, charged the Herbs and Holiday with murder. A month later, however, a tombstone judge, uh, Wells Spicer, found the men not guilty, ruling that they were fully justified in committing these homicides. And that would be a component of contention for the Cowboys as well. It, it was never specified what kind of relation, but supposedly this judge, this Wells Spicer, was related uh, to the Herbs that he just found not guilty. Uh, you know, and just again, boys will be boys. You know, no big whoop, just a shootout in the middle of town. No need for anyone to go to jail or anything for a bunch of murders. Uh, in December 1881, uh, revenge starts coming back on the Earps from the Cowboys. Viol- Virgil Earp is ambushed, shot in his arm. His arm is permanently injured. Several Cowboys are suspected of the shooting. Uh, Wyatt then takes over as deputy marshal. In January of 1882, the famous Amiel Huckleberry scene uh, from Tombstone actually does take place. Cowboy badass gunslinger Johnny Ringo really does challenge Wyatt Earp to a shootout, and Doc Holliday really does step in for his friend. And in one witness account of the incident, he says, I'm your Huckleberry, uh, when he's talking about, you know, uh, uh, being challenged to a gunfight and why it's, you know, like, nah. And then Doc Holliday supposedly does say, that's just my game. You know, uh, Holliday's also rumored to say after the gunfight is broken up, all I want of you is a 10 paces in the street. Dude was fearless. In March of 1882, Morgan Earp is shot and killed while playing pool. And again, the Cowboys are blamed for this murder. And then a week or so later, Virgil and his wife, Allie, attempt to leave town on a train. And two cowboys, Frank Stilwell and Ike Clanton, try to ambush them. Wyatt is there, kills Stilwell with a shotgun blast. Doc Holliday is there as well. Following this, a judge in Tucson issues arrest warrants for both Wyatt and Doc Holliday for the murder of Stilwell. And Doc takes off with Wyatt and a few other men to track down and kill other members of the cowboy gang You know that he feels were responsible for killing his uh, brother Morgan and shooting his brother Virgil. Just like in the movie Tombstone, they allegedly kill uh, Florentino Cruz, one of the Cowboys. Then a few days later, ambush several Cowboys, camped out at Iron Springs, and a huge shootout ensues. And Wyatt mows down Curly Bill. Again, just like Tombstone, man. Sadly, just like the movie, uh, neither Doc nor Wyatt are able to track down Ike Clanton, the man who probably killed Morgan. However, Ike was shot and killed in a separate incident just a few years later. So I guess he got his justice in a different way. May 15th, 1882. Holiday's arrested in Denver uh, on the Tucson warrant for murdering Frank Stilwell. And then when Wyatt learns of these charges and fears his friend is uh, not going to receive a fair, fair trial in Arizona, Earp asks his old buddy, uh, Bat Masterson, you know, we've talked about him numerous times now, the, who's currently the chief of police in Trinidad, Colorado, to help get Holiday released. And Matt Masterson does so. He draws up some bullshit charges to hold him there and then uh, takes Holiday to Pueblo, Colorado, and then just releases him on bond a couple weeks later. <laughs> Again, so easy to get out of murder charges back then. Uh, on May 15th, 1882, Holiday's longtime enemy Johnny Ringo is found dead under a low fork of a large tree in West Turkey Creek Valley uh, in the Arizona Territory. He had a large bullet hole in his right temple, and a revolver was found hanging from a finger of his hand. Uh, his death was ruled as a suicide. But according to the book, I Married Wyatt Earp, which author and collector Glenn Boyer claimed to have assembled from manuscripts written by Earp's third wife, Josephine Marcus Earp, 
That's the woman portrayed in the movie Tombstone. Uh, by the way, is the ageless beauty, uh, uh, or that you know, by by the ageless beauty, can be Dana Delaney. Uh, she was the you know the actress that came to town. Well, Earp and Holiday traveled to Arizona with some friends in early July, found Ringo in the valley, and killed him. Historians don't generally believe this account, but who knows? So maybe, 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 slight chance that Doc really did draw down on him out there, just out in the in the in the woods. You know, just come on, come on, you're no Daisy, you're no Daisy at all. So maybe that happened. Uh, what definitely happened is that Holiday's consumption worsened greatly, and he went to a Colorado, uh, went to Colorado, uh, and his life deteriorated. Uh, Wyatt went on to live with Josephine. Kate may or may not have spent time with Doc in Colorado. Doc, uh, you know, he went on just to kind of gamble, possibly getting a few more gunfights in various little Colorado towns, uh, spending a great deal of time in Denver. And then uh, 1886, Wyatt and uh, Holiday see each other for the last time in the lobby of the Windsor Hotel in Denver. Yeah, that little scene of uh, Wyatt, you know, seeing Doc in the sanitarium right before he dies from Tombstone is fabricated. In 1887, prematurely gray and, and badly ailing, uh, ailing, Holiday makes his way to the Hotel Glenwood near the hot springs of Glenwood Springs, Colorado, like a tuberculosis uh, sanitarium. And it is here he die at 10 a.m. on November 8th, 1887. He was only 36. A nurse was there for his last words. I guess he looked at his bare feet and said, this is funny. And then he passed on. Apparently, he always thought he died with his boots on in a gunfight of some sort. And at the end, uh, yeah, he just died, just died alone there. No family was with him. And, uh, and that is, is the lonely death of this Western legend. And that takes us out of this Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. So, Doc Holliday, what a life, huh? Uh, the slavery part and the swimming hole altercation, bummer. Uh, I don't know what I expected. You know, he was a white plantation owner in the pre-Civil War South. You can't not uh, be somewhat a product of your time, I guess. Uh, not that that makes it okay, but it's also not like he was doing that shit in, you know, 1985 in fucking San Francisco or something. O- overall, I-, I was really shocked that his life did really seem to match up pretty well. With Val Kilmer's uh, character in Tombstone, which uh, is awesome. Uh, and speaking of Tombstone, let's see if we can find uh, lurking in the comments section uh, under a clip from that movie, a couple old idiots of the internet. Idiots of the internet. All right. So under under a clip of Doc Holliday meeting Johnny Ringo, the famous scene where a drunk Holiday twirls his cup, mocking Johnny Ringo, twirling his gun. Almost every comment is someone praising the movie. I love it, you know. There's not too much idiot gold in this in this here thread. There's, there's civility. There's people treating each other with respect here in this uh, here thread. Uh, feels, feels right. Uh, but then uh, Mario Sevilla posts Hispanics for Trump. Why, 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 are you, why do people do that? All right, you love Trump. That's good for you. And by the way, this isn't about that it's Trump. It's just about, like, any politician. Like, what, what are you fucking doing? The, the clip has nothing to do with politics. It's like, good for you. But why, why are you uh, – are you just doing that to, to start arguments? To, yeah, of course you are, just to be a party crasher. You know, Mario, why don't you take your politics the hell out of Tombstone, man? We're here for Doc Holliday. Not to talk about the only thing the media seems to give a shit right now uh, about, which is the White House. Yeah, I just always hate it when, like, everyone's having, like, fun time. Like, it was so many comments of, like, love this movie. It's the best. And all of a sudden someone's like, politics. Let's throw that in there. Um, well, after this comment, uh, uh, is like a hundred more love fest comments talking about, you know, stuff like how Kilmer should have won 10 Oscars for his performance. Agreed. Uh, then someone else takes a shit on the parade. Uh, user Don Stone posts dumbest scene ever in the history of Westerns. No one signed autographs in the 19th century and Wyatt Earp was only known as a pimp 
and a small-town deputy before the gunfight. And it took several decades before fictional, fictional writers idolized Wyatt as a hero of the Old West. He died before his fame was realized, and he passed knowing he was a liar, murderer, and a fraud. What the fuck? Fuck off, Don. What are you talking about, you fun-killing asshole? Uh, oh, and I like no one signed autographs. Really? Actually, that's not true. Uh, no one. What the fuck? People make like these blanket statements like no one ever wrote their name down for another person. Ever. Not ever. Uh, I don't know that that's true. Um, and also, even if it was true, it's a fucking movie. You, you dumb shit. It never, it never like, it, it never referenced itself as a, as a documentary. It's a movie based on real events. So let them have fun with the scene. You fun killing son of a bitch. You know, why, why, why can't, why can't people do that? You're no Daisy, Don Stone. You're no Daisy at all. Uh, dumbest scene in the history of, of Westerns. No, it's not. Uh, major props to the commentators, uh, for not responding to either Don or Mario, man. No one, there's so much love. In this particular comment section, no one even responds to these trolls. Not even a single thumb up or thumb down. Nothing. Just ignore them. Ah, uh, God, I wish that would happen even more. You know, it's fun to like make fun of them here, but, but I like that they don't know about it. They don't know that we're talking about them because I don't want to fucking encourage those dipshits. And then there's like a like a hundred more happy, fun comments. And then old Don Donnie Stone shows back up. Fucking Donnie, uh, fun killing shithead Donnie. He posts weak cliche, soft tough guy bullshit. They should have just measured dicks and got it over with. LOL. No, not LOL, you douchebag. How about FYL? How about fuck your life? Is that an acronym? Is that some of the people's hashtag? FYL? I don't know if it should be. Uh, I'm doing it now. FYL, Don. Fuck your life. Do you even know what cliche means? It means a very predictable or unoriginal thing. There was nothing predictable about Doc twirling his cup to parody Ringo. It was beautiful and a very well-constructed scene. You fucking halfwit. You know what is a cliche? You're dumb shit trolling. Now go measure your own dick. You know, guessing it's somewhere under three inches when it's rock hard, you idiot of the internet. Hey, seriously, why you make a dick joke without Chikatilo? Oh, you would leave me out of the whole show. What I do? What's a big deal? Why can't you talk about my boner hating the, my boner hating penis for for two seconds? Nothing? You just you're just going to let uh, outro play now. Just fine. I guess Chikatilo idiot for expecting to have fun and more of show today. Of the internet. 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 All right. You just got uh, it snuck him in there. He's not going to always show up in every episode, but that was uh, fun. Uh, who, who really was Doc Holliday, right? Well, he was a tough guy. He was a proud Southerner. He was a guy who probably never was married to Kate and uh, probably was in love with his cousin Maddie. He was a guy who saw his mother and older brother die of the disease he learned that he had at a young age. He's heart sick. His body's dying a lot faster than it's supposed to. He had some anger issues, clearly. He's mama's boy. You may have hated his father. Probably hated his dad. He was loyal to Wyatt Earp to the end, helping him kill the men who killed Wyatt's brothers. He was fearless and a man who backed down from a challenge. He was an educated man and a good dentist. He was a gambler who clearly loved the adrenaline rush. You know, that it had to have given him. He was, he was a man who seemed unafraid of death. And he was also a man with, you know, not without many, many faults. Uh, I guess really, uh, you know, we actually do know quite a bit about him for someone who never uh, wrote down any of the thoughts that we have access to, all those letters being gone. Uh, you know, I'm kind of I'm kind of glad we don't have access to him. I kind of like the mystery that surrounds him. You know, I feel like uh, when you get a mysterious historical figure like this, it, you know, just all these secondhand accounts, it just allows us to kind of bend him around, make him a little bit of what we want him to be. And for me, what I wanted to be is Val Kilmer in Tombstone, and I feel like I got my wish. And now it's time for some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. 
Number one, Doc Holliday is rumored to have killed somewhere around 10 men or maybe never killed any. He was never found guilty of murder, and there are conflicting reports around all of his alleged murders. Mystery. Number two, Doc was born and raised in Georgia, the son and grandson of plantation owners, and he'd leave his southern roots behind at the age of 21 and spend nearly the entirety of the last 15 years of his life in the Wild West, becoming a little less dentist and a little more outlaw each and every year. Number three, Doc Holliday may have never headed out west at all and gotten into a lot of gambling and drinking if he'd only been allowed to marry his first cousin. Just a little cousin fucking could have saved him from all that. How weird, how weird is that possibility? Number four, Doc Holliday was involved in the most famous shootout of the Wild West at the OK Corral and really did track down and help Wyatt Earp kill various members of the cowboy gang that killed Wyatt's brother Morgan and tried to kill Virgil. Just like in Tombstone, so dope. Number five, new info. Hard to imagine anyone but Val Kilmer playing Doc Holliday in Tombstone the movie, but William Defoe is rumored to have been first considered for that role. I love Defoe, but cannot imagine him in that particular role. Supposedly, Kurt Russell wanted him, uh, but Buena Vista Pictures, the distributor, balked because of Defoe, of Defoe playing Jesus a few years before in that very controversial film for the time, The Last Temptation of Christ. So, uh, you know, we learned through Val Kilmer that sometimes second place isn't the first lo- loser. It's the best. Time suck. Top five takeaways. All right, Doc Holliday sucked. Hope you enjoyed it like I did. Uh, now time for a few more announcements before we get into this week's updates. Uh, Houston, Dallas, San Francisco, Brea, Sacramento, Tempe, Arizona, uh, just a few of the many tour dates uh, up at the freshly built DanCummins.tv. Check that shit out. Come see me live. Been having a great time with you time suckers at the shows. Again, check out Patreon. Become a space lizard. Join the future. Ensure the survival of time suck. Let this experiment and curiosity continue to grow into a true community. Can't do it without you. Enjoy the new album on Pandora for free. Maybe I'm the problem, right? Link in episode description. And, and here is a, a little clip of my other new album, Feel the Heat. The one you get for free, you know, when you sign up to become a space lizard. So, really, you can get it for five bucks. You know, you sign up one month. All right. If you don't like it, you don't want to be a, a space lizard, that's fine. You still get the album. And here's a little taste. I was on a flight with this guy to LA. And we were having a nice conversation. He was a nice guy. And I, I was excited for him to, to move to LA. I was telling him where to go, what restaurants to eat at, you know, how to avoid traffic, all that kind of fun stuff. Happy for him. Uh, and then I told him that I was moving to Idaho. Uh, he, was, he was not as happy. He, he reacted as if I had told him that I was moving into his mom's bedroom. And I was going to be paying my rent and dick exclusively. It was a strong negative reaction. He just told me straight up, he goes, I've never been to Idaho and I'll never go. And then he explained himself. He goes, as, as a black man, and as a gay man, I just know I wouldn't be welcome. And that kind of hurt my feelings when he said that, that that's how he felt, you know, about my home state. And I was like, dude, that's crazy. That's crazy. I'm like, you clearly don't know this, but there's a lot of gay black men living in Idaho. And he was genuinely surprised because I just, you know, I made that shit up. But you know what? I hope he believes that lie. Ah, man, that was a fun show. Fun show to do. Uh, thanks to Sydney Shives, Harmony Velikamp, Jesse Dobner, Josh Krell, Maddie Teeter, Maddie the Heater Teeter, Deanna Marino, uh, Deanna, sorry, uh, man, trying to read too many names too quick, Deanna Marino, and the entire Time Suck team, thanks for all the reviews, uh, spreading the suck, well over uh, 2,500 reviews on iTunes, it helps so much. 
Uh, thanks for using the Amazon button at timesuckpodcast.com to do your shopping and help the show out while you do. Uh, thanks to all of you who voted for Doc on Instagram. Hundreds of you seem pretty excited to vote and vote quickly uh, for Doc Holiday, so that's pretty awesome. This Monday's episode, fascinating. The colonial devastation of Africa. All right, so many civil wars and corrupt governments on that continent. A lot of the chaos can be traced back to some super shady stuff Europeans did in the late 1800s, European powers. And, and we explore the history of various cultures uh, on the very intriguing continent of Africa. I feel like a lot of us know very, very little about what can be called the forgotten continent. And so, you know, you're going to know so much more real, real, real soon. So really hope you take a listen to that. And now, time for some Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. So many updates coming in about last week's Freemasons gender debate uh, update. I knew there would be, and I love it. We should be able to talk about stuff like this, and we're going to here on The Suck, and we do. Uh, this first one comes from Matthew. It says, hey there, Suck Master. Just wanted to throw in my two cents on the gender-exclusive Freemason issue. I'll keep things brief as I only want to present a counterpoint or two that I don't think have been considered. It's been said that its exclusivity is unfair because it provides men with networking opportunities. Well, if we take this to be true, then doesn't that mean that any other exclusive networking event should be also be forced open to everyone if we want it to be consistent? And yes, and that is the argument you know I've kind of uh, tried to make as well. And then he says, uh, Matthew says, well, what about wealthy country clubs? Should just anyone be able to walk into private events hosted by the rich and famous? This line is too blurry to be drawn anywhere, uh, and much like private businesses have the right to refuse business to anyone, so too should people have the right to make whatever clubs they want and refuse admittance to anyone. Uh, though like you, Suckmaster, uh, I personally wouldn't care about any arbitrary distinctions like these and, and don't see much reason for them in most cases. On the off chance if I were in such a group, I would likely advocate for open admittance as well. It is a shame that no female equivalent exists, but nothing is stopping you from creating one. From creating one. I myself am a white male programmer, and I can speak from experience that being a woman or minority gives you a huge leg up in hiring opportunities. The statement that females have a harder time getting into jobs in STEM fields is largely a myth, uh, and most of the gender gap in these workplaces is due to the simple fact that fewer women choose to go into these fields. Uh, the company I work for in particular is only 40% white to highlight the level of what I consider to be unjust discrimination, much like affirmative action. Some colleges will actually consider uh, – will actually subtract from white and Asian SAT scores when considering students for admittance, while other minority groups uh, groups get a bonus. If this isn't racist, I don't know what is. It implies that these schools actually think that minorities need help to get into these schools and can't do so on their own merit, in addition to increasing the amount of work necessary for non-minorities to shine over the rest of competition. For the most part, uh, schools and workplaces are more than happy to hire a female or minority with lesser qualifications only to fulfill their diversity quota. If I were a minority in that position, I would be disgusted, feeling that I was being reduced to a statistic and that I didn't actually earn the position. But anyway, that's just a little tangent on the discrimination stuff that's been a hot-button issue right now. I personally love debating with others, and even though I'm sure you'll get a ton of emails on this subject, mm -hmm, uh, I'd appreciate it if you take some time to get back. Or if you can't, I suppose I'll just have to see you in Chicago. Well, thank you for sharing that, Matt. And I knew this would be a trigger issue for, for many. And, and yes, and we have been getting a lot of emails. And your message illustrates both sides. You know, uh, uh, Like me, you value freedom and, and the right for an institution to admit how it pleases. And like me, you, know, you don't like it when an institution skews unfairly away from you in its policies, like admitting someone to the same place you're trying to get in, even though they may have you know, a lower test score. Uh, I myself was told numerous times in Los Angeles that I wasn't going to be considered for an important showcases. I mean, just directly told this. 
uh, because casting directors and agents attending the show were not interested in seeing any 30-something white dudes. That, I got to say, you know, uh, felt fairly racist as well. You know, uh, I was like Jessica in her original message, banned from something that would help my career, you know, for sure, uh, in some way, uh, in this case, because of my combination of gender and skin color. But I also understand that what happened was done because of historical inequality, and that even if it affects me negatively in the present, the intention uh, behind doing it is good. And, 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 you know, as is making it temporarily easier to allow historically disenfranchised ethnic groups to get into certain schools or how it may be easier for women in certain situations today to, uh, because of quotas to get certain jobs, you know, uh, and again, done because out of historical inequality. But also, like you're bringing up, you know, we have to be careful, I think, uh, in terms of the fairness to people in the present to not swing the pendulum so back the other way that now the other side is being disenfranchised. You know, which no one ever, for whatever reason, wants to talk about, but can very easily happen. Uh, you know, more interesting thoughts. Uh, circling back to Freemasons, um, yeah, I, I just I, I see both sides, like you, and I, and I would want to allow women to enter personally, but also like you, I wouldn't want that enforced because, above all, I value the freedom of choice, and, and this is where this thing keeps coming back to, and will always keep coming back to, is freedom of choice. You know, versus you know some type of inequality. Okay, so let's let's get some more perspectives. Had some really good ones about this coming so far. Uh, the next one comes in from Runa. Runa, I, I hope I'm saying your name right. Uh, and this is, okay, so Runa says, about women and Freemasons, I'm a woman, and the argument that women should be allowed in for networking is fruitless. First of all, there are young professional groups, Chamber of Commerce, uh, as an example, and female-specific networking groups that any woman could join. However, most women's groups are more social in nature, and that is their aim. Gaining business connections and networking is not the sole aim of the Freemasons. I think that the sentiment that women should be able to join stems from that same cultural entitlement of this era where everyone is offended by everything, everyone should be included, nobody's feelings should get hurt, and everyone should be rewarded for mediocrity. I fear that we are heading toward a highly censored monochromatic society where nobody is identified by color or sex or sexual orientation and nobody can say anything for fear of offending someone where we all use the same bathrooms and there is no gender distinctions, I do not believe the Freemasons or any other organization are responsible for perpetuating the gender bias of a patriarchal society. If anyone is to be blamed, it is us. There are male-dominated fields and female-dominated fields, and if you're not happy with the balance in your desired field, then be that minority. And if you want to change that, incite and inspire other like minds until you represent the majority. I fucking love that, Runa. Excellent insights. Yes. Well, I don't feel uh, what Jessica asked for, you know, specifically was – was part of our everyone needs a trophy, kind of no matter what culture. I, I do like your attitude of if they don't, you know, if they won't let me in their club, I'll fucking start my own club. I mean, that's what Time Suck is. No one wanted this podcast. Nobody, when it was just an idea. Why? Because I didn't have the right connections. I was not part of the LA Cool Kids Club. You know, I, I didn't share the same political leanings, basically socialist far left, uh, like a lot of them. And, and, you know, and who knows why. Uh, so, you know what? I got fired up and, uh, and I started my own. Uh, we can't change the past. We can only change the future. And in the present, no one is stopping anyone from starting an important all-female networking group. And you're right. How far do we take this? Everyone is the same shit. I like diversity. I'm okay with not being able to go uh, to every meeting because I, you know, I'd want the same option afforded to me. And uh, you know, uh, with freedom to do that, inequality is going to also come. That's going to be the negative consequence. Inequality will always exist. We're not always going to be picked first to recess. We're not always going to get into every club. Uh, and also, you know, I think rejection does kind of build some perseverance. And again, I think Jessica would agree with a lot of this. Her argument, as I understood it, was that she was not at all opposed to exclusive groups, just opposed to excluding people from important career groups. And by the way, I have gotten a lot of messages from Masons letting me know that they are currently far more of a social group. 
than a career-focused group. Okay, one more, and then we're out. Uh, one more on this. Uh, this comes in from Susan. This is a really interesting perspective. Uh, Susan writes in saying, A co-ed Freemasons? While I feel for Jessica and agree with the spirit of equality in what she wrote, I feel that the right of association is ultimately more important in a free society. Our Constitution gives us the right to choose who we want to spend time with in private spaces. And the Freemasons, for whatever reason, even in the face of declining membership, continue to insist on the fraternal nature of their group. Good or bad, the right of free association allows free people to define their identities in ways that are important to them. I am a transgender woman, and having lived on both sides of the fence, I can say that private clubs or spaces for men are rare. There is arguably more activity at the Freemasons Lodge than professional networking. Although women have, and continue to, suffer from oppression and discrimination, they are free to establish a similar private organization if they wish. At times, I struggle with exclusion from certain women's spaces due to trans status, but again, I support the right to determine uh, who they'd prefer to spend time with in their private lives. I also am, an, an, uh, I am also an attorney and can say that most professions, including mine, have many groups and networking opportunities for women. There are several groups that I belong to, and I have used these networks to gain referrals, ask questions, and garner general support. Personally, I feel more comfortable in these groups than their co-ed counterparts because my female colleagues seem less guarded and more confident in these spaces. While women have some catching up to do, we can do so without abridging privacy. And the right of association to get there. Fucking beautiful, Susan. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, what a wonderfully unique perspective you bring to this, having been on both sides. Thank you so much for writing in. I think those were some fantastic insights. And yes, freedom. Freedom, freedom, freedom. And if you if you can't beat them, well, I guess that doesn't work. Never mind. I was going to say freedom, freedom, freedom. And if they won't let you in, fuck them. Start your own thing. There we go. I love it. Yeah, let the Freemasons do their thing. There are other networking groups. Freedom of choice. You know, one of the most important things we have in our society. And, and again, I hope I didn't convey uh, Jessica's tone incorrectly. She, she truly comes across as a wonderful person in our exchanges who wants us to join that particular group, you know, uh, because of that, the opportunities locally for her. And, and on an emotional level, I do feel terrible for her. Uh, now, um, so, you know, I don't know. So do what I did, Jessica. I, I guess put, put that rejection on your shoulder and let that chip get big, you know, get pissed. You know, start your own group if you really feel that passionate. Or, you know, fucking, what am I, why am I telling you what to do? Do whatever you want to do. There is, uh, there's not always a clear-cut answer. And sometimes it's just important to keep talking about something. God, love you beautiful bastards, man. Thank you for being part of Time Second, making it so special and diverse and wonderful in a place where we can talk about this shit. You know, this isn't just some place where we're just preaching to the choir of people who already agree with us. Uh, there's enough of that in society right now. We're just, we're fantastically different, and I love it. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a good weekend, everybody. Don't challenge anyone to a duel unless you're ready to draw down, Huckleberry. Uh, remember that everyone is welcome, everybody, to be a space lizard. If you got five bucks, hail Nimrod, maybe even hail Lucifina, and keep on sucking.